Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where normally we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. However, we are going back to our a, a new favorite of ours. Uh, so so here, let's just quickly introduce ourselves. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And today we are doing the definitive Christopher Nolan ranking all 10 of his films are all on the table we're going to talk about them all to some extent Ian how are you feeling about this I'm feeling great I was going to say this this is going to be definitive all the other Christopher Nolan rankings they're they're all imitating so will the real Christopher Nolan ranking please stand up and that is this podcast right here I don't mean to toot our own horn or anything but this one is going to be it's going to be uh incendiary yeah there's 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 gonna be some some raw passion in this in this ranking that's why it's a a sort of trigger warning and or uh, apologies in advance i have been (laughs) drinking maybe you can hear it maybe you can't we're also we're we're actively drinking as we speak i am i am uh, enjoying a georgetown bodhisattva and i am enjoying a shilling um excelsior hard cider I've had one of those. They are quite delicious. I'm not a cider guy, but I dig those. And I, and I have had the Bodies off, I thanks to you. So, uh, yes, I, I'm aware of your beer as well. Um, okay, so so let me just, just so, so I can put this all out there at the beginning. Um, we are not going to explain the plots of all of these movies. I'm going to assume that you either know what the movie is about or have seen it. So uh, know that spoilers will happen. Um, hopefully you've seen these movies, um, and, and you have some interest in seeing them if you haven't. So chronologically, really quick, here we go. Following, Memento, Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. And of course, the soon-to-be-released Tenet, which will not be a part of our conversation as we've not seen that one, but, um... Yeah. So, should we talk a little bit about Mr. Nolan? Well, yeah, I've got a little bit of a uh, very small biography on Mr. Christopher Nolan. I didn't know this about him. He actually has both dual U.S. and U.K. citizenship, which, yeah, that's, that, that's cool. That he was the went thing up, that took me by surprise, too. Yeah, that he kind of went up in, in my estimation. Like, I knew he was English, but he has a... Uh, he has a British father and an American mother. His mother was a flight attendant. His father um, was, I, I think, uh, hang on. He worked for an, uh, an advertising company, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. He worked. He was an, His dad was an ad exec. And uh, Mr. Nolan, he was born in Westminster on the 30th of July, 1970. So we're a couple of weeks away from his 50th birthday. I, I'm not going to assume that he's going to hear this, but if he does hear it, happy, happy birthday, Mr. Nolan. Happy hope you birthday have a, to you. I hope you have a great 50th. Um, he really went up in my estimation when I did some reading about him. His biggest influence, or one of his biggest influence, was a huge love of mine, and that is uh, Sir Ridley Scott. He has said mm-hmm. on numerous occasions that Alien and Blade Runner, 
huge influences on him as well as Star Wars and 2001. So all the great sci-fi epics are what make up uh, his inspirations and the DNA of his films. Uh, he went to uh, Haleybury and Imperial Service College and University College London. He met his future wife and producing partner, Emma Thomas, there. They've been in a relationship since he was 19, which is great. Good for you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm always very excited when couples like that, you know, they can stand the test of time and stay together. Um, he studied English and film. And uh, he screened 35mm films during the school year and then used the proceeds from screening those films to make 16mm films during the summer. Some of his short films include uh, Tarantella, which is a little bit surrealist, and uh, if you were watching PBS in the late 80s, you may have seen that one. Uh, he did another one called Larceny, and then his most famous one uh, starring the, the lead, Jeremy Theobald, of uh, following, he's in his uh, short film Doodlebug. Did you watch any of the short films before we started this? I I have seen Doodlebug uh, in the past. I did I didn't rewatch it, but I, I have seen it. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun. I dig it. Yeah, I mean, I I do. I mean, even even at you know a short film status, he's he's really interested in messing with narrative and and messing with story and getting you to sort of not to, to getting you to not to. Um, what am I trying to say? Getting you in a place where you don't know what the next thing is going to be. So before we begin our rankings with our number 10s, you want to talk a little bit about the collaborators in his life, some of the people that will crop up if you were to say, do what I'm assuming you did as well, but over the course of a week, I watched nothing but Nolan films. You'll see a lot of the same names in the credits. I don't know if you want to talk about some of his collaborators up front. I, I would love to. Yeah, I think that'll be good to as we go through. So um, I I went with um, uh, I went I sort of broke it down into five categories. Um, so I'm going to start uh, kind of maybe more behind the scenes and then a, a bit more obvious maybe. Um, one that I thought was great. One of his most long-standing collaborators outside of Emma Thomas, who has either been a producer or a co-producer or associate producer on every film that he's put out. Um, his production designer, Nathan Crawley has been his production designer on um, ev almost all of his films. He was not the production designer on Following, Memento, or uh, Inception, uh, but including Tenet, all the other films um, he was a production designer on. Um, I believe he even earned he earned um, uh, an Academy Award nomination for his um, production design in The Prestige, as well as um, also in, um, he earned a, a BAFTA nomination for his production design for Interstellar. Um, when you look at scores, it's funny because I think Hans Sorry, Zimmer, before you, I'm sorry, I don't oh, mean to interrupt. Before you no. jump away from Nathan Crowley, uh, I, I did a little bit of reading about him. He's actually related to very famous uh, occultist Alistair Crowley. He's a, a descendant of him, maybe a nephew or something like that. But uh, the other thing that interested in me in, in Nathan Crowley, I took a look at his, his credits. He started as a set decorator on Hook, which I have talked endless <laughs> amounts of shit about on this show. <laughs> that, is, that, that is fantastic. That's a great... <laughs> That's perfect. We have. Hook has been the butt of many a joke on 1001 by 1. And, and it will continue to be. Indeed, it absolutely will be. Um, so with score, I know we, we raved a lot about Hans Zimmer um, 
when we were talking about the Dark Knight, um, but he also he was a part of all of the Batman movies. Um, with the Dark Knight Rises being a sole score of his, uh, not having James Newton Howard on that one. However, he also did the scores for Dunkirk and Interstellar. And I, I don't know if it's my favorite of all of his with with Nolan, but Inception, the score for Inception is is really great. Oh, it's it's fucking fantastic. And if you uh, if you go back to last week, where I think we. In fact, I think uh, he was your unsung hero on the Dark Knight. Right, he was. I I said that I felt like it was his best work. I kind of want to walk that back just a little bit, and this might be a hot take right up front. <laughs> I do think I do think that it is his best work as an innovator, and I am still very impressed by the fact that he is self-taught. He's not classically trained, so I will say that his score on the Dark Knight is is perhaps his most innovative but i i have to say i have to walk back that comment and say that i think overall end to end and it may be because i listened to it end to end today but gladiator is i think his best score <laughs> i get i don't i i there, and there are others too of his that, that are really good so I, i'm not going to make a definitive statement on what i think Hans Zimmer's best score is, but I mean, Gladiator is a great score as well. Um, Well, it's something we'll have to revisit in the, in the coming months. Ooh, that's a nice teaser. Um, But I didn't want to step away from score yet because David Julian's worked with him four times uh, following Memento, Insomnia and the Prestige. And I, one of the things I really love about Memento is the score and how um, it really does help connect you with what world you're in at the time, if you're going backwards or if you're going forwards. And that score is haunting. The score in Memento is fucking haunting. And the, the music that rises up as the picture is undeveloping, mwah, mwah, it's perfect. Oh, it's great. It's it's one thing that I did definitely highlight uh, in this go-around, watching Memento. It's very atmospheric. It's very jarring. Well, not not jarring in a bad way, but it's very. Uh, it sets. it does a great job of setting you on edge. Um, and then I was moving on to uh, cinematographers, which, I mean, you, you really can't associate uh, Christopher Nolan with great cinematography and not talk about Wally Pfister. It is unfortunate that, what I mean, I'm not even sure what happened, but after The Dark Knight Rises, Wally Pfister probably just wanted to start making his own his own movies, uh, anticipate an upcoming episode of, um, of uh, Below Freezing to talk about Transcendence, which I haven't watched yet, but uh, that'll be on, on the horizon. Um, but the work that he did with Christopher Nolan is just, it, I mean, you, you can, you can just see it. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and, but I got to say, um, the work of, uh, Hoyt Van Hoytma, uh, on Interstellar and Dunkirk is also really great too. So, you know, he, I, I can, I mean, I will say with what, whoever the cinematographer is, Christopher Nolan has a great working relationship with that person and you, you can see it on the screen. It's, it's yeah, phenomenal. No, he has. He has great taste in cinematographers, and of course, Wally Pfister did finally uh, get his due when he won the Academy Award for his cinematography on Inception, and that's just something I, I mean, that was a great year for film just in general, but I can't argue the cinematography win for Inception. Fucking great looking film. And of course, yeah. I said on last week's episode that I do, and I, I will stand by this, I won't walk this one back. I do still think The Dark Knight is one of the best looking comic book movies, if not the best. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, uh, moving on to editors. Um, I don't want to skip over Dottie Dorn 
because Dottie Dorn earned an Academy Award nomination for editing Memento, uh, which is great. Um, but Lee Smith has been the essentially the longtime editor since Batman Begins. Um, not the editor for Tenet. Uh, somebody named Jennifer Lame is going to be the editor for that film. But Lee Smith from Batman Begins to Dunkirk um, and, and won, uh, won uh, uh, an Oscar for editing Dunkirk. And also was, I believe, only nominated. No, no, no. Editing. Uh, sorry, sorry. Inception was not nominated for editing, um, but one for Dunkirk, which is great. So again, you can also see too that um, uh, Christopher Nolan is giving his his designers and people who worked on the film a great opportunity to get themselves some accolades uh, working on his movies because you can see most of the people he's worked with have either been nominated or won an Oscar. Uh, Lee Smith has uh, he has a great track record. He he uh, edited well. He did get a nomination for the Dark Knight, didn't win, but he did also edit the Truman Show, and a film that I love very very much, which is Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. He was editor oh, on yeah. that film, and the okay. one the actually the one that pisses me off. I'm I'm really happy that he won for Dunkirk, but I do think that editing was a category that kind of went by the wayside when it came to 1917. He was. He's also been Sam Mendes' editor uh, for the past few years. He edited uh, Spectre and he edited uh, 1917. I do really think that 1917 deserved that recognition, even though the film appears like it is all one shot. But uh, if, you're, uh, if you have the time, I know you're not a commentary guy, but if any of our listeners are into commentaries, you absolutely should listen to Roger Deakins' commentary on 1917 because he does highlight where all the cuts, he doesn't call them cuts, he calls them blends, where all of those happen. And nice. honestly, I don't want to go on a 1917 tangent because that's not we're here, what we're here to talk about, but when I assumed the first cut happened, there were like seven others before that. Like Lee Smith is the unsung hero. If we were to ever do a 1917 episode, Lee Smith would be the unsung hero of that film. I'd have to imagine that in, in some later incantation of the book that it's good that 1917 will will be in there um and then i guess you know the only other um collaborator i wanted to mention i guess was uh would be his brother jonathan nolan who um has co-written a lot of the movies uh memento was based on a short story of his um jonathan nolan co-wrote um the prestige and the dark knight and dark knight rises and interstellar so um just a long time working companion uh, is his own brother. Well, yeah, we'll definitely elaborate on that writing process when we get to Memento. And we should call out, if we forget to, when we talk about Interstellar, that Interstellar was his script originally. He was commissioned by Steven Spielberg to write that script. So he had caught the eye of, you know, the biggest and best outside of working with his brother. So that's those are the key collaborators I wanted to mention. Did I leave anybody out that you wanted to throw some some love to? Well, those are all behind the scenes people. If we're going to talk about in front of the camera, we can't not talk about Michael Caine. We can't not talk about as Christopher Nolan describes him, his good luck charm. I I have a little game coming up later, uh, so that that'll come up. But yeah, but for sure, yes, Michael Caine um, appearing in uh, the Prestige, all of the all of the Batman's that he did. Um, also in Inception, lends uh, a, a very small scene and small scenes in Interstellar, and his voice on the other end of a radio in Dunkirk. Yeah, I mean he's. I think, and we'll elaborate on this further, but I think he's done some of his best work with Nolan. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. 
Um, so are we, are we jumping in? Are we jumping into our, our top 10? Well, the last, the last thing that I want to do before we jump into the top 10, uh, and I know we're already more than 15 minutes in, but, uh, mm-hmm. I want to give a shout out to IndieWire. Last year they did a little article where they talked about some of Nolan's favorite films. So just before we get into the films themselves, just maybe talk a little bit about more about his influences. Uh, so I have all 30 of them. I'm not going to bore us with all 30, but, uh, you know, you can go on IndieWire's website and you can find that article. But I just wanted to talk about some of his influences with you and kind of get your reaction to some of them. Uh, the first one that caught my eye, because I mentioned it during a Hitchcock episode, is he talked about Foreign Correspondent being an influence of his. I don't know if you've seen that yet. I have not. I, would that, did that make your top five Hitchcock? Uh, top- uh, it was formerly in the top five. I believe it fell out. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so I think it's just outside the top five. Uh, the one that I was expecting to see that I didn't see, because I he is known as such a James Bond fan, I was expecting to see Honor Majesty's Secret Service amongst his favorite films, because uh, Inception shares those kind of uh, very exciting ski sequences that are also in that film. But he talked about The Spy Who Loved Me as being his favorite Bond film. Now, I know you've only just recently bought that box set have you delved into the world of james bond yet and started no, to go through that so i was um they were on prime for a long time and and when i was uh during um when we were te- uh, teching a show that i was in i would sort of watch 30 minutes here and there and i went through a couple of them um I, you know and it's hard for me to remember all of the ones that we went through i do know that that's whenever we started that's going to be the next sort of like collectively that's that's what we'll start to watch um, but we haven't we haven't delved too deep into that yet well the the spy who loved me is certainly the best of the roger moore era films um as i mentioned earlier he's a big ridley scott fan both alien and blade runner appear on his list of favorite films as does 2001 the stanley kubrick film um the original superman the richard donner superman appears on his list of favorite films of all time i don't you know we've never we don't talk comic book movies a lot when you and i talk so i'm i'm curious to know how you (laughs) feel about that appearing on his list um i i think that a certain generation being impressed by superman does not surprise me um i i think i probably watched that film for the first time two or three years ago uh it it falls very very flat I, I and I've seen I've seen the four Christopher Reeve Superman. I oof, woof. They they only get worse. I I'm not surprised to hear that. There are <laughs> moving on actually two Terrence Malick films on his list of favorite films. The first one being The Thin Red Line, and okay, the second yeah. being The Tree of Life. Yeah. The Thin Red Line, man. That's I've only seen it once, and I'm very I'm very hesitant to revisit. Uh, Thin Red Line just because of how much it 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 haunted me like it that movie genuinely fucked me up I I've I've seen it once and it has been I mean I was definitely like maybe in my third or fourth year of college when I first saw it so it's been uh, quite a while since I've seen that movie sorry not to not to drag on the running time any any more than it's gonna be but I just (laughs) just want to just I was very excited when I saw 12 Angry Men on there because that was a movie that was a movie that fucking changed my life, changed the way that I thought about films. He's got All Quiet on the Western Front on there, which is a movie that uh, if you stick around with us, we're about to do that one in a few weeks. And I'm very excited to see that film for the first time. Indeed. Uh, he's got Koyan's Quancy, The Right Stuff. 
and then one that really irritates me because it's in the book and it's going to be quite difficult for us to do it is greed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just based on trying to find a copy of it. Yeah, and, you know, not giving Scarecrow a $700 deposit for the VHS. <laughs> That's true. Oh, man. Well, yeah, the, and, I mean, I, and everybody's influenced by different things. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear any of those. I think, I think those, are, those are all great movies. All right, man. You ready to, you ready to get down to brass tacks? You ready to uh, get out the brass knuckles and, I, and go to I war? Am. I am. Who who's who's given their top who's given their number 10 first? You know, seeing as though you are more of a Nolan fanboy than I am, I will secede pole position to you. So as we mentioned, we you know, yes, both of us over the last week or so, we we all we we rewatched all of these movies and um and just like before with uh, when we ranked Fincher movies and then Spielberg and the Ots, I, I had a pre-ranking and then a, and then a, a post-watching ranking. Um, so I'm just going to come right out and say it. My number 10 is Dunkirk. <sighs> I'm guessing that's not... Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be contentious already. I cannot believe that. I cannot believe Dunkirk is your number 10. Well, it is. That is. I I have no words. I have no words. My number what ten is, is the dark. My number ten is the Dark Knight Rises. Okay. My number nine is Interstellar. Oh, sorry. We before we before we continue, we oh. should probably tell our oh. audience if they didn't if they didn't listen to the Fincher one. The way that we're doing the the director rankings yes. is that you say one. I say one, you know, we going up from ten to going up yeah. from ten to one, and then uh, we'll discuss the film at whatever the highest position it is. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. So sorry, your number nine was Interstellar. Yes, uh, my number nine is also Interstellar. Hey, there we go. Uh, <sighs> Interstellar's tough, man. That is, it's a. I hate this. I hate this adjective so much. It's an interesting movie. It's, there's a lot of there's a lot of strange choices, a lot of interesting things that happen in this film. I don't know if you want to yeah. lead the discussion. Well, I I do. I like, and I I forgot how. You know, kind of when this takes place, in you know, in the somewhat distant future, and we're going through a, essentially a new type of plague. They call it the blight, and we're essentially just. They talk about all the dust and basically people are just growing corn and, and it's basically become a world where we don't need scientists anymore. You know, we need farmers. We need people to grow shit. And clearly Matthew McConaughey has some kind of um, astronaut or fighter pilot kind of training. And, you know, I, I really, I think there's some great stuff going on. I really like, you know, where, you know, like there's little scenes that I really enjoy. I, I loved Matthew McConaughey going to talk to the principal and the teacher. I thought the whole thing about, you know, I kind of wish her mom was still alive because she'd be nicer and, and she'd be handling this much better than I would. I, I, there were some great little moments happening there. Um, and I love the details of how the world has changed. Like, like it's like, it's like a crowd of 100 people watching the New York Yankees play like just cool little, I thought those were all fun details. Um, Again, going back to the fucking cinematography, it's just, I think it's just gorgeous. Um, you know, 
I think maybe my 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 biggest issue with the movie is um I think it's how do I say this? It, it's trying to come across to be more of an important movie than it actually is, um, because I I think because and it's tough because I do think that this is trying to make a comment on the way that we live now and the way that the world could go, you know. And I think it, it I think it's trying to make kind of a a quasi comment on you know global warming or 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 um, just industrialization and, and, and all of this, all of this kind of stuff. But I, I think it gets lost in the quantum physics and, and, and the fifth dimension stuff. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know. I, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of factors that are kind of working against each other in the movie because I, I don't know ultimately what I'm, what I'm trying to, to, to glean from it. Well, I, I felt like you would have a, a stronger connection. I don't want to play the dad card. But you, you are a father, and this film is very much about father-daughter relationships. Yes. So I, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Because um, I do, I think the scene, I think the scene where uh, Jessica Chastain, the first time that her, her face comes up, and she's basically saying, you know, she, she's sending him the message because she's the same age that he was when he left. I think that's all great, but that the the, the thing that's become, become a meme of Matthew McConaughey just bawling, um, that's actually I kind of think, and I maybe this I need my soul's a little too dark to have. I mean, I maybe I shouldn't be nitpicking this moment, but when he he first sees a young Timothy Chalamet who is his son, um, the first like when he comes back from the first planet, and um, he's he sees the first video, he smiles and then he starts crying and. You know, part of me wishes that they had saved Matthew McConaughey crying for something a, a bit more pivotal. But the, I, what I, and I, I don't know if you remember this, but he starts crying the second his son says he met a girl. And I was like, no, no, that's not the moment you start crying. Like, I'm just like, I'm thinking like if I'm putting this movie together, it has to be something more personal. It has to be something more touching. Well, yeah, because uh, just seconds later, it's followed up by Casey Affleck as the older version of his son showing him his grandson. That's the moment where you cry. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that you can't. I, yeah, I, I just think it, it happens really early and it's really intense. And I get that he's been he's been gone for a while. But like and especially because when he sees the first video of his son, that's the way he, he remembered his son. Right. He hasn't seen his son age. Yet. It just I don't know. It. it it didn't. The synapses in my brain couldn't connect it. it. It didn't. It felt a bit false to me, um, and I think ultimately what where this movie lacks in uh, in kind of in character building and character relationships, um, the visual. I mean, I don't know how to. I, the visuals are great. Like when they're on the water planet, that shit was intense. Like oh yeah, when they crazy. when they figure out that those aren't mountains, that they are their waves, and you have minutes to get off the planet because this wave could potentially kill you. That's fantastic. I mean, I, you're not going to hear me knock the you're not going to hear me knock the visual effects. You're not going to hear me knock the score at all because I think this is a very good score by Hans Zimmer. It's not his best, but I think it is a very good score. Yeah. Um, and the performances like McConaughey just he gives it everything he has. Like he knows, you know, you, you go as an actor, I feel like you go into a Nolan film at this point or even, 
six years ago when this film was released, and you know the stakes. You know, Heath Ledger has set the bar. Leonardo DiCaprio has set the bar. Like, you know how hard it is to to make your mark in a film that's going to be so revolutionary because his films are revolutionary. He takes cinema and he does a great job of turning on his head. So you really have to be 100% firing in all cylinders. And Matthew McConaughey, he does it. This is an absolutely fantastic performance by him. Can I, can I ask you but a question? But it's let... Yeah, go for it. Is this movie better if either Leo or Matt Damon is in that role? Oh... I man, I don't know. That's that's tough. That's a that's a really tough beat because I do think Matthew McConaughey knocks it out of the park. I think he's see, great. I, in this. I I think he knocks moments out of the park, and there are other times where it it feels either either false or and I'll I'll just I'll just try to I'll just say it. His his um vocal rhythms, his his Matthew McConaughey ism. Um, it makes it hard to believe the shit that he's saying at times. Don't and, let and, me and leave, Murph. It's it's, and I buy. It's funny because I buy the passion, right? I, it's not that I. It's not that I don't believe the emotion, but it, it seems again there's like a disconnect, you know. And I feel like if it's, and I know that Damon is the surprise villain in the movie, but like I just there's an there's more of an everyman earnestness that Damon brings, and more of a I don't know. Leo's just good. So, and it's not that I don't like Matthew McConaughey. I think he is severely overrated. Um, so you know that's maybe that's a personal bias creeping in there, but eh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but you also at this point have you seen Killer Joe yet? N- no, I haven't. But I okay. I am familiar. Tell me, I've, see, see Killer Joe, and then tell me you still feel that he's underrated or overrated. He, excuse me. But here's the thing: I, I, I have seen the play. I've read the play, and I, I, nothing that he's. Here's the thing: I, I know what's going to happen in the movie when I eventually watch it, and it's, it's not going to change my mind. It, it just won't. Well, that's you already. You already have a disadvantage then, because you know. I do. You know the play. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I when do. I when I saw it, I didn't know the play. So for me, oh, this I'm was sure. like a. I'm sure when it you saw it, Matthew, it fucking... Yeah, it fucked me up, man. It was yeah. a Matthew McConaughey renaissance for me. I was like, what the fuck is this guy doing in this? And holy yeah. shit, he's nailing it. What, Whatever it is he's doing, because I'm not going to pretend I know what the fuck is going on in that play as far as, you know, uh, uh, an acting standpoint goes. I don't know what it takes to get <laughs> to twisted. that place. It is twisted. But whatever it is, I, he's fucking nailing it. And I will watch it eventually, but yeah. And I mean, and I, and I guess I wanted to just, I, I, the only thing I wanted to like, you know, I only have a few bullet points for each thing because I know we could talk endlessly for all of these, but I is, I know you've mentioned before, I think even on the podcast, but at least, you know, it, when we talk about this is that, you know, this definitely falls in your esteem because you say we already have 2001. So I want to know if that's still something you actively think about now having rewatched it. Well, I will. I will preface by saying that I I did the same as you. I didn't do it for the Fincher one, but I was I was smart enough to do it for this one. I made a pre-watch ranking, and a post-watch ranking. I actually made three. I made a pre-watch, a post-watch, and then a final. And um, in my pre-watch, Interstellar was number ten. It was actually below Dark Knight Rises. And it you know it went up a point, just because the pacing in the first hour. The first hour of this film is fantastic. Like so, I, I I had to I had to get up. I got a I 
I paused the movie, got up, I got something to eat, and I got another beer, and I, I came back down and I looked at the timestamp, and the timestamp was like 58 minutes, I was like, holy shit, I can't believe that 58 minutes has gone by, like, this film does so much work up front to set this world up and to get you engaged in these characters and to get you to care about this world, and then something something happens, you know what I mean, in like the second act of this film where... For me, I start to disengage, and then I re-engage when Matt Damon appears, because I'm like, holy shit, that's Matt Damon, and this is great, <laughs> and he's the, he's the surprise villain, and I re- I, you know when he comes out of the cryosleep and he starts to cry because this is the first face he's seen in decades at this yeah. point? Like, I, I believe it. Like, I get it. It fucking, it gets to me, and he has, I'm going to big up, uh, Matt Damon I know he's he's only got a small role and he like you say that's a great phrase I love that the surprise villain when he he does that thing where McConaughey starts to realize that oh shit you lied about your data you just wanted to get rescued and they have their fights and and uh, he's got him pinned and Matt Damon realizes the only thing he there's this great moment where there's only like a second he's there he's pinned and he, and he doesn't know what to do next, and then it comes to him, oh shit, I can smash his helmet with my helmet, and he starts banging on yeah. his helmet. And when he and when he gets, you know, the, the air starts to come into McConaughey's helmet, and he's starting to, to asphyxiate, and Matt Damon is like, I, I, I was going to stay with you, I thought I could stay with you, I thought I could watch this, but I, I just can't, I just can't watch you die. Man, that moment, that moment hits me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. So I'm I'm sort of there. Are, there are things that are going on in this movie where I that are diametrically opposed. Like I love the performances. I can't knock any of the performances. And what's going to happen here is I'm I'm going to get it out of the way now. I'm going to talk shit about Michael Caine right now. I don't think this is a good performance from Michael Caine. His death scene, not good. I can't understand it's, half of what it's he's fucking not a saying. Good, yeah, and it's it, you know, well, that's true too. Yeah, you can't hear the words he's saying, and it's just I don't think it's a well written scene. No, anyway. I don't think so either. So other than that one, I can't knock the performances, but some of the Nolan, as we talk about the Dark Knight trilogy, we'll start to delve into this more, but as he's so obsessed with realism yes. and this, this movie takes, you know, it, I'm, and I'm not going to pretend I'm not a, phys, a theoretical physicist. I, I don't know what's true and what's not. This podcast is not a science podcast, <laughs> but the idea of fifth dimensional human beings placing a tesseract inside the black hole and that it was preordained that Murph would be the chosen one to discover how to save mankind and that her father was going to be the conduit for that. I mean, that's cool and all, but I'm more interested in what that looks like. I want to see these fifth dimensional beings. I want to see the decisions that they made to get to this point. Uh, and it's also, it's kind of like the Terminator. So like we talked about, it's the chicken and the egg thing. Of yeah, like he sends yeah. his own father back in time. I'm more interested in that story than I am the the conclusion, quote unquote, the conclusion of, of this story. Yeah. I, it, it gets a little, it gets a little uh, crazy and hard to follow there at the end. But I mean, yeah, yeah, you can't knock the visuals. And, and, and I think some of the performances, I, I'll. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I know John John Lithgow is criminally under underused in this film. That's true. Like if you, That's true. If you're if you're gonna get John Lithgow, like fucking make him do some work, man, because he will <laughs> work. True. John yeah. Lithgow is fucking amazing. 
He's great. In fact, I saw a movie with John Lithgow uh, just a couple of years ago. Him and Alfred Molina playing a gay couple, which was great. One of the and they're they're forced to to live apart and to still try and have a relationship across New York City, and and just him and Alfred Molina working together, beautiful. Did you did you watch Dexter? I did not, but I know he's in that. Yeah, his hit the season of Dexter that he's on. He's fucking nuts. He is. That, that's crazy. He, yeah, he's crazy good. All right. Um, moving on to eight. Moving on to number eight. Uh, so my number eight is The Dark Knight Rises. Well, there you go. That was my number 10. That it was. And, that it was. Holy shit. That movie. God, I wish you and Melissa would do this on Below Freezing, but I mean, the movie's Rotten Tomatoes is is way too high for some reason that I just oh, can't fathom. Well, I, like, I can't, we're gonna I, save I can't. we're gonna save Rotten Tomato scores for the halfway point because I yeah, there's some crazy shit going on there. Um, so here's the thing about The Dark Knight Rises. This is a this is a movie full of like some really just cool cool moments. Um, I do think as as uh, who know? I mean, the plot is overly convoluted, and that's the. I think where this film suffers the most is, I who who knows? Like, there's the whole thing with the 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 water ev- evaporator thing, and like it's just, and now it's becoming a fucking neutron bomb, and it's it's crazy. A lot of it is crazy, but I like the ramifications. I like that the city shuts down, and like there's all these different like the, all the shit going on, and that opening the scene in the plane. I love all of that. I think that that cool. Like the way the bigger plane comes and fucking rips it up, and the scores amped up. I I do I I I love that. Um, well, the movie never lives up to the promise of that opening scene. That's fair. That's is I, the I issue. can't disagree and, with that. And we have to deal with this right now. You genuinely think right now in your heart of hearts. I want you to look because we're doing this over Skype. I want you to look yep. me in the fucking eyes and tell me you genuinely think that Dark Knight Rises is a better film than Dunkirk. Yeah. I I don't I don't know what to do with that. I I That's literally fine. I literally don't know what to do with that because That's Dunk, fine. Uh, because The Dark Knight Rises is it's a comic movie it's a comic book movie that forgot to have fun. And I'm not saying that all comic book movies have to be over the top. They have to have you know huge moments of levity. They have to have you know it's 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 a movie that just forgot to be an engaging and an entertaining experience. They were so... And the thing that makes most Nolan movies great, especially when we come to Inception and Prestige, we'll talk about his use of foreshadowing and his use of details, but this is a movie that just forgot to have fun. I mean, I guess it depends on on what you mean by fun. I mean, and I get that it's it's pretty dark. I mean, I the the fight between Bane and Batman, that first one down in the in the sewer it's it's tough i mean if, if you if you like oh Batman, no that's 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 my favorite moment in the movie i will say when they suck all the music out and it's just those flat hard packing sounds of bane's fist just beating the ever-loving shit out of batman i i love that moment because it, it shocked me like it that that's a moment that shakes me to my core because we want to believe that batman is infallible we want to believe that he can do all these amazing things, and here comes this guy out of nowhere and literally destroys him and his world. That moment where he's beating 
the bat the cowl until it crushes into his face yeah i mean that's that's some ballsy shit and i give nolan huge props for running with that like well done sir that is an incredible moment but you've still after that you've still got another hour and a half of movie and and honestly for me it's it's the length and and how convoluted okay let me let me like but here's the biggest things the length the convoluted script and the uh quote unquote twist of uh um um what's it Tate? Uh, what, what, Miranda Tate being Talia Al Ghul, which if you're if you're a Batman fan and and because Liz is in my life I've learned and because I've played the Arkham games, I've learned a whole lot more about Batman than I had previously. And so that that to me I was like, I knew that I knew that shit was coming. The second he has the flashback with uh, with Razal Girl, Razal Girl sort of appears to him when he's in the prison, and his back is in so much pain. You could say that he's maybe kind of hallucinating because he's sure. in so much pain. Uh, I at that moment I was like, yeah, she's Talia Al Ghul. But I, I do, I don't know. I, I, it's maybe it's hard for me. It, it is a bit hard for me to explain. But I think, you know, it, it's the culmination. I like, I like seeing where like Gary Oldman becomes more important. Like, you know, there's all that shit where Batman, not only is he actually out of Gotham, but he's basically now leading the charge. You know, it's it's Gary Oldman and, and Jason, Gord- uh, Jason, Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, trying to rally the troops. And I like what he does. I know we lose Michael Caine for a lot of it, but I mean, Michael Caine, holy shit, man. That the, the scene two, where he stands up to him. The two scenes, the two really big scenes that he has. Obviously, there's the one where he tells him about Rachel's letter, which is great, yeah. and then the one where he cry. He, he's they've quote unquote buried Bruce Wayne, of, and then he turns Bruce. to the graves. He turns to the graves of Thomas and Martha Wayne, and he starts crying. He says, "I failed you." I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. That hurts me. That chokes me up. As I said on last week's episode, as a as a as a man from the British Isles, and having grown up with Michael Caine and seen all the badass gangster roles that he's played. You know, that that kind of made me question a few things in my life. Like, oh shit, Michael Caine is an actor. He can cry. Yeah. Like, he's got this shit. So, I think a common theme you're going to hear as we go through these is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a question for you as we go through. Is the ending uh, of this... Or, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things happening at the end of the movie. Um, does the ending for you work any better if... And maybe I mentioned this to you before. If... When Michael Caine looks across the restaurant and that same story that he alluded to earlier to him is coming, kind of coming to fruition. If we don't see Bruce Wayne and we just yes. see his reaction. I'm so glad I'm so glad you brought. Yeah, absolutely. If we don't see the reverse of that shot, better movie. I mean, because we don't we don't need it. We'll no, get yeah, it because he did the same thing in Inception. He took a chance on not on not showing us the top fall. We just see yeah. it spinning and then it and it shudders slightly. He took a chance on that, so why not do the same here in Batman? Why not take a chance and let us decide if Bruce Wayne is alive or not? Yeah, yeah. And I well, that was it. That was the small thing. Um, I I almost wonder if that's a Warner Brothers decision, like a, from a franchise standpoint, if that's their sure. decision. Because as a filmmaker, I'm leaving it ambiguous. I'm just showing Michael Caine. I'm doing. I'm I'm fulfilling the promise that I made early in the film, showing him in Italy getting his Ferne Branca. 
we don't need to see if Bruce Wayne is alive or not. Yeah. I I I think it's I think the storytelling's been so clear up to that point that it you, you they could take a bigger risk. They could take a bigger chance and just not show it and we would absolutely get it. Well, um, after after Batman Begins and Dark Knight Rises, don't you think he's earned the op- he's earned the right to be ambiguous at the end? He's earned oh. that lack of payoff. Well, and I mean, and all the other movies he's done for Warner Brothers up until that point too. I mean, granted the the and we have, we're not talking about the Prestige yet, but the Prestige was the first like more, like a big studio taking a chance on him, and and so but so he's I mean in a way yeah Christopher Nolan is slightly beholden to Warner Brothers, but then again, look at the I mean how many how many filmmakers are out there getting to make I mean I granted. Nolan does have the Batman trilogy behind it, but getting to make big budget original movies, like who the fuck gets to do that? Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I respect and the thing that, I mean, it's easy to shit on success, right? I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and, and, you know, talk shit, but he is at this moment in time, the most successful filmmaker in recent history, I mean, Warner Brothers let him crash, you know, moving on to, to Tenant, which hasn't come out yet. They let him crash an actual 747 into a fucking hangar. Like, in what world are you allowed to do that? <laughs> Only in Christopher Nolan's world. Exactly. I mean, so, I mean, fucking hats off to him for, you know, taking the studio for a ride, if that's in fact what he's doing. Um, I, I have one more Dark Knight Rises thought, just for me for me what do you think of tom hardy's voice i think every decision tom hardy makes in this film is the wrong choice <laughs> every fucking single one of them <laughs> I, and i love tom hardy i mean a year later he would make Locke, and i i think Locke is one of the best films of the century so far Locke is good Locke is a good Locke, Locke is oh it's more than Locke is damn near perfect Maybe he wonders why you would shoot a man before throwing him out of a plane. <laughs> I mean, it is so like I think and I think we it's take the city and we give it back to you. It's like a, it's a fucking you're not doing a Batman villain, you're doing a fucking Austin Powers villain. Like what the oh, fu- man. and and why didn't Christopher Nolan go, hang on? Hang on, there. I I guarantee you, there was like a half a dozen people on that set that had to like turn away to make sure they didn't get picked up by the booms, who were laughing their fucking balls off. Now, now I do like even early, early Tom Hardy. He has always been one to sort of change himself physically and vocally, and so that that's not surprising. But there, do you not get a sense of like I need to I need to Heath Ledger this shit like real hard? Oh, absolutely. I, I got like. <laughs> Like you know, you know what? Actually, if Dark Knight Rises comes out before Dark Knight, we probably wouldn't be talking shit. But because he felt the need to, like, oh man, I gotta follow. I'm the bad guy in this film, and Heath Ledger yeah. changed villains in films forever. I gotta, I gotta do something, and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go as far out left field as I possibly can. And honestly, it's it's the wrong choice. I love Tom Hardy. 
I, I, it, yeah, me too. It really, it pains me. It pains me so fucking much to talk shit about Tom Hardy. <laughs> but it, it, you get it's down to good. brass tacks. I, I love him in Bronson. Obviously, I just said that Locke, I think, is one of the most perfect films of the century so far. I fucking love him in Inception. I love him in Rock and Roller, even though that's just a small role. But, yeah. dude, what the fuck were you thinking? What I appreciate, what I actually honestly genuinely appreciate about it, it was a big, bold choice that he stuck with for the whole fucking thing. Like, cool. That's who you are. I get it. That's what you're doing. And the size of him, I mean, I mean, you can't knock the size of him in this film. Like, he is, he's a force to be reckoned with, and he is intimidating. And honestly, yeah. if he was standing in this room right behind me right now and did this voice, I would shit my pants. <laughs> Well, let's let's move on to your eight before that happens. Well, yeah, but well, before we do, ah, I thought that was a good segue. I'm, I'm sorry, I, it was a, it was a good segue. I'm sorry to fuck that up. I I really am sorry to fuck that up. But when it comes to the Dark Knight Rises, and I know you said you want to hold on to talking about Rotten Tomato scores, but at this point, at this point in history, this is film number this is film number eight for him. Yes. I feel like we're in the territory where we're quote unquote not allowed to talk shit about him because the Rotten Tomato score for this fucking thing is 87% critic and yep. 90% audience and it's Indeed. also number 70. Number think about this. Oh, no. This film is no. this film Oh, sorry, I'm spoiling it. I know. We'll we'll get to where his films cuz he's got seven films on the IMDb 250, yep. but yes, they, before yep. we get there. This film is number 70 on the IMDb top 250 of all time. Just think about that. That, let that, that let that permeate. Let that fucking ratchet itself into your brain. And how does that not make you fucking sick? Okay, so the Rotten Tomato score is something that I can't. I can't. Whatever. Like that is what it is. I, I can't do much about it. I think that's more of just an interesting t- statistic. Number seventy on the IMDb top two hundred and fifty. That is just like. I mean that that, that is so much horse shit. It's so <laughs> laughable. <laughs> Also, I'm, I'm, I want to pull the Wes Anderson card out of the deck really quick. Does this film not feel like look at all my famous friends? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I get. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Ben Mendelsohn, totally wasted in this film. No idea yeah. why Ben Mendelsohn is in it. I'm happy to see him. But dude, what the fuck are you doing in this movie? You know, I think the thing, though, is that Ben Mendelsohn, even though he he's older in the movie, like he's still kind of making his bones. Like Ben Mendelsohn isn't Ben Mendelsohn for another couple of years, I think, after after the dark Knight rises uh, or maybe i just uh, okay no no that's that, that's fair that, i oh, d- i mean uh, i i did i did see the place beyond the pines first and i fucking love him in that yeah but again he's still like he's a character actor like he's you know he's still like he gets to be kind of a dick in in a big fucking blockbuster so that's that's something yeah no i i i love seeing him in it but it also kind of confuses me <laughs> that's fair <laughs> all right man what is your what is your number eight my number eight is following. Well, let's talk about it because that is my number seven. Perfect. Following, following, I would say is a is a pretty good first film. Yeah, I, you know what I, what I really really enjoyed watching this movie is, I I I I'm watching it and I go, you know what, if and when. Ian and I ever make a movie like this is the kind of movie I think we could do like you know we just get a camera and we, we work with the people that we know and the places that we're familiar with and like 
what what I like about it is it in a way it feels like a big movie like you know it has a score and it's it's kind of craftily edited and we've got these different timelines and 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 I I really I think I miss this Christopher Nolan so much. It was gritty and it's kind of dark and it's about some guy who fucking following people and doesn't know he's being set up and it's just like I mean, some of I, I, uh, how do I? Uh. No, that's no, that's great. Stay with that. The idea of because we'll talk about this again in Memento. The idea of a man being used, a man being positioned like a chess piece, is how yeah. I looked at this film because this is only the oh. second time I've seen it. But yeah, I yeah, looked yeah. at well, it. He was being. You get to you get further into the film, and the the reveals start to happen. You start to learn some people's ulterior motives. He he's a chess piece, and yeah. I I really like looking at it like that. And and let me let me sort of sidetrack the conversation for a moment. Did you ever feel like you would would ever say the words "I wish this Christopher Nolan film was longer"? Um, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned length because obviously I think the longer he, the more he gets into his career, the longer his movies get. Now, Dunkirk is actually one of the shorter movies, but um, yeah, it's it's funny. I do think that there's, and I don't know what exactly, but there's more you could have. There's more probably with the relationship with the blonde that you could have you could have done. We could have seen more of Cobb on his own. You that's know, more that's of, great. Do you do you think that because that's Leo's character's name yeah. in Inception is. Is the Cobb in this film the same Cobb in Inception? Just I don't. Who, who's I don't to say? But oh uh, yeah, who exactly? Who's to say? Yeah, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't get that. I just think it's a name that he liked, and he kept in. He put into a later movie. Um, that's oh, that's spe- a fun fun little connection though. Well, speaking of Easter eggs, do you like that? There's a giant fucking Batman symbol on the front of the door that they break into. Well, that's uh, that's not so much an Easter egg as just a happy coincidence. Well, sure, but I mean, like that's that's awesome. Like, like who the who the fuck would have known when they were making that movie that in less than a decade he would be helming the fucking new Batman trilogy? Like, that's just that's just crazy. That's fun. And I do I do really like that a lot. And the you know the reason why Following is number eight on my list is not necessarily because I think it's a bad movie. I think it is a really really good first film. Maybe even as I watch it more, maybe I'll come to say that I think it's an above average first film. I'm not going to say that right now, but I'd certainly think that I could find greater appreciation for it. I just like the other films on the list more. Yeah, I think I, I think why this one is is higher up on my list is I, I like the grittiness. I like, you know, it feels messy, but I think the the concept and the story to me is what what draws me in. And as much as I um I don't think Jeremy Theobald is a good actor, um, I think I think he's working. I think Alex Ha, who plays Cobb, and Lucy Russell, who plays the blonde, I think he he's in scenes with better actors, which I think elevates his game. Um, but I I don't know, man. I think that the grittiness, the originality. I, I just I like it. I like I like that it feels it feels like a first feature, but not in a in a bad way. Um, yeah, it's also man, the I first. Don't... It's the first appearance of his uncle John, who pops yeah. up in a few films. Uncle John plays the policeman in this, and will go on to appear in a couple of the Dark Knight movies as well. Yeah, the as, as I don't know what his name is. Like I just call him board member. <laughs> uh, board yeah, member. I have Fredrickson is his name. Oh, sh- 
But there, there you go. And then he's um, he's the blind guy at the end of Dunkirk handing out the blankets. Oh shit! I didn't know that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I have a I have a little something to read to you about following because it okay. it was uh I found it to be a little incendiary and I I really want to highlight when this piece was written. This piece was uh, written in December of 2012 by a fellow named Doctor Svet and Ato- at Ansov. I'm probably butchering okay. the pronunciation of that name. I apologize because that's what we do on this show. Uh, but on <laughs> Blu-ray.com, which I don't know if you use that website. That website is like a Bible for me. Yeah. Uh, the Criterion had just been released. And this is what he said about the film. Because not only do they review the picture and audio quality, they review the film as well. He said, if the directors that made any of the greatest film noirs of the early 40s and 50s were still alive today, I think that they would be making films that looked a lot like Christopher Nolan's following. This is a flawless film, really. The British director has gone on to shoot some really big and very successful films, understatement of the year, since 1998, but I think the following remains his masterpiece. This, this He said that at the end of 2012. He said the following remains his masterpiece. Wow. That's, that is a bold statement, sir. That is I don't a, know how I, I that I you can you're allowed to have your opinion but some opinions are just fucking wrong. <laughs> it's you know, it's a good movie. It's an especially good first movie, but masterpiece? Uh, come on. That's a word that uh has unfortunately descended into the realm of hyperbole. Yeah, it it's like I I don't mean to it's like I hate going to theater sometimes because I feel like now there's, regardless of how good the show is, there's some fucking obligation that you have to give it a fucking standing ovation. It's like, no, you do that for the truly incredible performances that you see. Don't just stand because you saw somebody else do it. Like, so I think, I think, yeah, I think masterpiece can just, you know, it's like, oh, I'm somebody with a voice. I can just say that this is a masterpiece. And it's like, well, Mm. I'm I'm gonna bring up a, a a piece of ancient history for you and I. Did we not stand up and applaud at the end of Grindhouse? Oh, we might have, <laughs> but we were also what, like twenty two. Well, but like, what a what a fun night that was. It was a great night. It was and a that's gr- something- sorry to, sorry to get off track. We're gonna have a moment of nostalgia here. It was you and me and Melissa and Chris. Yeah. And remember, everybody got up after the end of Planet Terror, and we all turned around and went, no, there's another one. It's a double feature. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. yeah. I totally remember that. That was one of my favorite memories. Sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack no, us there. No, not at all. And, feeling, and that's the thing, I'm too. I'm feeling is, nostalgic. I, we haven't, I haven't mentioned it yet, but but some of these movies I saw I, I saw in theaters, I haven't seen all of them, and, and we can talk about them as they come up. But, like, you know, part of when how I saw these movies and when I saw them is also kind of high up it, it, it'll affect placement as we continue on the list so that was my number seven will you recap your number seven so my seven uh was the dark knight rises my six was following which is why we talked about it so perfect what is your six? Oh wait sorry 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 following was your eight following was my seven so what is your seven? That's where we are. My number seven is the Dark Knight. I uh, I just want to let you know how much I I hate you. I oh I know, I hate you as much as you hate me right now. <laughs> 
Okay, so my number six is Batman Begins. My number six is Insomnia. So it looks like we're at our halfway point. <laughs> That's not much of a halfway point. I mean, we, we know we've both gone through our five, so... Do yeah. we need to talk about five films before we actually take a break? Is that is that no the plan no or? no 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 not at all. Okay. In fact, I would I would love I would love to play your game. Okay, so I um I was uh, going through and I was like, hey, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna come up with um my my Christopher Nolan SAG awards. So I'm gonna read you the nominees and the performances, and I want you to pick your winner. Um. So let's start with best. Sorry, do, sub- do you want me to rank them or just pick my favorite? I just want you to pick a winner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're gonna start with one, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna say that there's one person who's not nominated. So we're gonna go with best supporting male performance. Heath Ledger is not a part of this because I feel like he would just win. So we're gonna, or maybe not, but I'm just gonna take him out because of all the acclaim he got. So five nominees, best supporting male performance. Your nominees are Michael Caine. The Dark Knight Rises. Tom Hardy, The Dark Knight Rises. Killian Murphy, Inception. Joe Pantoliano, Memento. Or Robin Williams, Insomnia. Oh, goddamn. All right, Tom Hardy is out right now. <laughs> Fuck Tom Hardy. <laughs> and I do, I do really like Killian Murphy. but I think that's the wrong nomination. I really like Killian Murphy in Batman Begins more than I like him in Inception. So that one's oh. out. Okay, okay. That leaves me with Robin, jo- Michael Joey Kane, Pants, and, yeah. and Joey Pants. Yeah. Oh. You see, I think Michael Caine deserves recognition for the trilogy as a whole. So this is this is sort of like his, his, his makeup Oscar, or his makeup this, sag in a way. Yeah, exactly. So... If we're to look at the Dark Knight trilogy as a whole, I'm happy for it to go to Michael Caine. But I really fucking love Robin Williams in Insomnia. I I think that's the way. And I don't want to take away from Joey Pants. I fucking love Joe in Memento. I think he's fucking great. I think he's like my bronze bronze medalist. And this is a little bit is a little bit irrelevant now because of when we're recording this versus when it comes out, but Joey Pants was recently on Mark Marin. And if you're a Mark Marin fan or not, that is a fucking great episode. Those two I, 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 I saw a, I read I read a snippet of what of something that came out of that. It's a great conversation. I fucking I was dying. I was dying laughing. So I think I know you didn't want me to rank him but to cl- pick a clear winner, so I just want to make it clear. Joey Pants, number three, bronze medal. Number two, silver medal, Michael Caine. But the clear winner is Robin Williams in Insomnia. Because yeah, he I, does he does some magical things in that film, considering who he is and what we've come to know of Robin Williams at that point in his career. Like yeah, I mean he's I, done he's done dramatic shit. He's done Good Morning Vietnam, which is kind of both comedy and drama. He's done Dead Poet Society, Good he's Will Hunting. Goodwill Hunting, which Goodwill Hunting if ever an actor deserved an Oscar, Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting fucking earned that gold medal right there. For, but for Insomnia, sure. Insomnia is just something. It's an actor challenging themselves. It's an actor taking everything that you know about them 
and completely spinning it on their head. And yeah. I respect that so I, much. And, and and I think it's a little skewed because he also did one hour photo. But That's true. That's true. Yeah, I, I want to give it to Joey Pants, but I think I think Robin Williams is, is the winner. Oh, now, absolutely. For best supporting might, might be the only thing we agree on in this episode. <laughs> for be, best best supporting female performance, I got creative because there's not a like female performances in his movies can be can go one way. So if you if you feel like I left somebody out, it might be because I pushed them into lead. So here we go. Best supporting female performance in a Christopher Nolan movie. Rebecca Hall, The Prestige. Marion Cotillard, The Dark Knight Rises. Anne Hathaway, Interstellar. Harriet Sampson Harris in Memento. She plays Mrs. Jankus. And Lucy Russell following The Blonde. Well, I think Lucy Russell and uh, give me the actress's name again for Memento. Harriet Sampson Harris. I mean, they're both good at what they do, but I don't think they have enough screen time in order to leave a, uh, uh, an impression. So that leaves me with Anne Hathaway of Interstellar, Marion Cotillard of Dark, Dark Knight, Knight Rises. Rises. Yeah. Okay, here's the problem. That's the wrong fucking movie. She no, should no, have no, been nominated. She's she's coming back. Oh, she's okay. Good. Yeah. Okay, so she's she's out for Dark Knight Rises. Had you said Inception. She would have had a okay, good well, shot at well, number one. Well, don't worry, don't worry. Okay, who have I got left? I've got Rebecca Anne Hall. Hathaway. Rebecca Hall for the Prestige and Anne Hathaway for Interstellar. Uh, Rebecca Hall wins for me. I, you know what? I was looking at this, and I, I gotta give it to Harriet Sampson Harris. I think, I think she's great. I, I buy everything she does in that in that role, and all the all the cutaways to her, like. I don't know. I, I give it to her because it's it's kind of it's kind of a zag, but also like she's good in what she does. It's like it's like oh. a William it's like a William Hurt in a History of Violence type performance. Like she hasn't got much oh, time. Now she that, nails it. God damn it! Now that you say that, you're making me second guess. But Rebecca Hall just breaks my heart so goddamn much, man. No, she's great. She's good in it for sure. Would would she be a, a pretty good a pretty good case for your your runner up? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. Okay, so a new this is a made up and I feel like I already know your answer to this, but uh, this is a made up uh, a particular award specifically for Christopher Nolan. Best recurring actor. Your choices are Michael Caine, Killian Murphy, Tom Hardy, Anne Hathaway, and Marion Cotillard. Anne Hathaway and Tom Hardy they're out right away. <laughs> And I feel like my reasons should go without saying. <laughs> I've got Michael Caine. Well, he calls Michael Caine his good luck charm. I yeah. mean, it's kind of hard to argue that. I mean, it's almost Michael Caine by default. It, that's what I was... I would have picked him anyway. I just... I had to think of other people to put in there. So, that's... But Marion Marion Coltar is my, my runner-up. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. Best leading male performance i I'm, i'll be curious to see if i if, if you like the choices i made right. your your nominees are christian bale the prestige leonardo dicaprio inception hugh jackman the prestige al pacino insomnia guy pierce memento oh man you're really gonna bust my balls huh i, I 
dude, I don't. Okay, Christian Christian Bale in the Prestige. I really love him in that movie, and we're trust me, we're gonna do a deep dive on the Prestige. We've got a okay. lot of talk about when it comes to that film. Okay. Hugh Jackman. I want to put something to you before we get to the Prestige. Now that you've asked me this question, before Prisoners comes out, is the Prestige his best performance? Because, bear this in mind, he actually plays three characters in that film. Um, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I, he really he really hadn't pushed himself so much up until that point. I would, I could, I think I could say yeah. Okay, so, and then Al Pacino, I mean, Pacino's out just because of all the, if I look at Pacino, his entire oeuvre, his oeuvre, <laughs> I mean... Insomnia probably is his best film until he gets to The Irishman. He had a couple of great... That's what I thought. Great moments between here and there. Like, You Don't Know Jack, where he played Jack of Orkin. Yeah, I've Fucking seen that. awesome. Love yeah. it. I'm going to go I'm gonna go slightly controversial. I'm going to say Hugh Jackman. Oh, wow. Wow. Mine's... Mine, my runner-up is Al Pacino. Uh, and my winner's Guy Pierce. I mean, Guy's great. I love Guy Pierce in Memento. But I think, I think there's a handful of, and I'm not trying to take away from what he did because he does great work. But I feel like he's not the only person that could have played that role. I mean, I, I I could kind of see that, but I also because of how independent this movie was, I think I think he it could the, the role also could have been a lot worse. And I think, given everything, God, he he just fucking nails it. We'll talk more about he, that later. But he he really does nail it. I do love Guy Pearce in that. He would make a strong runner-up for me okay so best best leading female performance and again i i had to get creative with yeah so here are your nominees jessica chastain interstellar marion cotillard inception anne hathaway the dark knight rises carrie moss memento hillary swank insomnia I don't even have to think about this one. It's fucking Marion Cotillard in Inception. She destroys me. She literally fucking levels me in that movie. So I I, I agree. I agree. I I think I think uh, and, and what would really happen was that Carrie Ann Moss and Jessica Chastain should actually be in supporting, and they they'd battle it out. And I'd probably give it to to Carrie Ann Moss because it's just so unique and different i think each scene that she gets because of how this, the movie progresses you get to see a different side of her but yeah it's 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 marion cotillard for sure okay and i got one more i got one more this is my last one best ensemble here we go your nominees are the dark knight inception insomnia memento and the prestige Oh, well, I'll give you the top three. Prestige, Dark Knight, Inception. With Inception being number one. Well, that's, that's, your, that's your winner? Yeah. Oh, man. I think I got to go Dark Knight. Yeah? Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Like, Heath Ledger just outweighs everybody. But the problem is, and this is what we talked about in last week's episode, is Aaron, Aaron Eckhart and Maggie Gyllenhaal just aren't that good. 
and so it kind of drags See, I, the movie down. I disagree. A little bit for I disagree. Me. I think Maggie Gyllenhaal isn't that good. I think Aaron Eckhart doesn't get a lot of screen time, but I like what he does. I do. I honestly and genuinely like the choices that he makes in that movie. How, how about this? I like half of what he does. Hey, oh. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. That's, you, you that, is that? Some, that is some bullshit. Right. <laughs> Well, well, do you want to keep going and find another intermission, or do you want to do my game? Let's do let's do your game. So, um, this I I realize the way I worded this is probably poorly worded, but I also have, and I I'm not going to ask you to pick a winner. I would actually like you to rank these in order of the sort of trauma that they caused you. So, trigger warning. Uh, for for anybody who's had a loss in their life, but I would like you to rank what I'm calling the Dead Wives Club. Okay. Uh, anybody who's a big Nolan fan, you will notice a trend in his films, and that is that spouses are either absent or they are killed off in a very dramatic manner. I don't know how Emma Thomas feels about that. I would love <laughs> to hear her two cents on that. But But here we go. So there are a total of, I, I, I called it six. I mean, and I, I probably shouldn't. Uh, okay, anyway, let's, well, Interstellar, there's mention of uh, the, the mom not being there, that the mom died of cancer, and that if the country had continued to focus on scientific research, if they continued to study you know, medicine, that the mom might still be there. Yeah. So that I think it still counts, but if you want to leave it unranked because she's not shown in the movie, that's totally fine. Okay. So in Memento, we actually have the death of two wives, or depending on how you feel about it, maybe the death <laughs> of one wife. So you rank this how you want. Okay. We have the death of Leonard's wife, and we have the death of Mrs. Jenkins. In Prestige, we also have two deaths. Yeah. We have the death of Angier's wife and the death of Borden's wife. Mm-hmm. In The Dark Knight, even though she's not married to Aaron Eckhart's character, we have the death of Rachel. Okay. And in Inception, we have the death of Mal, who is Leo's wife in that film. So okay. if you want to rank so, those in the order that they sort of traumatize or the way that you felt about them. Um, so I, I think... I think Mal's death, Marion Mary Cotillard in, in Inception is lower for me but only because she's still so present in the film and she's such a powerhouse and I it's it's I don't I know that she's she's dead but she's so alive in the movie that I don't you know it, it's it's messed up that she jumps off but I, that one that one's pretty low for me I'll I'll be honest with you that that's 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 pretty low um so I'm not going to count Leonard's wife um well, I guess no. I guess okay. So, so we're talking about the okay, okay. I got you. I um, okay. So I've got the two deaths in Memento, the two deaths in the Prestige, and what 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 else? What what else am I left with? Uh, Dark oh, oh, Knight yeah, and, Dark and Knight. Inception. Yep. Okay. So, oh man, I gotta. So when when Rachel dies in the Dark Knight, it is very shocking. Like you, like I just I didn't see it coming. Um, but 
it's more like of a storytelling device. It, I mean, she should she, she didn't need to die, but it, that one didn't have such a profound effect on me. I will say that all the other four, the two in the two in Memento and the two in Prestige, are all pretty. So I'd say my my four is probably um, uh, and Angier's wife, um, and I think maybe it's just because of of how theatrical and accidental it was and 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 she wanted to be pushed with the with the knot and 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 obviously it's it's brutal it's it's rough and and like he, he she dies right in front of him um so that one's that one's that one's pretty jarring um jesus uh let's see I, I, you know, and maybe I'm just, it's so I, I think three is probably Borden's wife. I can't think of her name in the movie. Um, uh, but, uh, Sarah, Sarah, because, uh, and that's so heartbreaking because of obviously and spoiler alert, we're not talking about it yet, but the, the, the twins factor and clearly one, one of, one of him was in love with her and the other half wasn't. And that's so, that's so tough for her and for the kid. And that one, that one's, that one's pretty heartbreaking, but I, I do think that number, I would say, I mean, as vicious as it is, I think the Leonard's wife, the if if you believe that she died, depending on how you view the movie, the the raped and beaten and dying in front of her. But again, I I, I the the Sammy Jenkins like the continual shot of insulin, and just like because she can't accept what's happening to him, she would she just chose to 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 kill herself because of of not recognizing who her husband is and, and the pain that she would cause him. I, I, I personally, I think that one, that, that one probably is the one that is like the, the harshest to me. That's, that's number one for you. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's interesting. Cause that's like number three for me. Yeah. Number, number two being Angier's wife, the whole stunts in the, yeah. in the, the, the water tank that, because we, I mean, we, we live it. We have to live it in the movie, and then we have to re—we have to relive it throughout the film. Yeah, but it's—we it, are sort of diametrically opposed about this. I think Mal's death is the one that hit me the hardest because, again, we see it, but I think I think Nolan does a fantastic thing where he cuts away, and we're forced—we're forced to see it through Leo's eyes as well. Yeah, we're forced to actually be in that real time moment with him, and his ex- his exclamation of Jesus Christ is just so visceral and and real for me. It just it hits me in in all the. I I mean I did start. I'll, I'll confess I started weeping during the first time I saw I saw Inception three times in theaters. Obviously, I was prepared for it the second two times, but the first time I just started weeping. It fucked me up, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it's, 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 if you're not expecting it, it's shit, it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And then number four for me would probably be, be Rachel. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's a little games, if you will, some fun ranking and award shit that we like to do here and make things a bit spicier. Um, because we, we love lists. We love lists. And I love Lamp. Um, so are we breaking and I into love the- Lamp too. <laughs> Breaking into the top five, huh? We are in the top five, sir. All right. So my number five is... I'm going to preface this by also saying that the five through one, I love all these movies. Like, I genuinely fucking love all of these movies. My number five is The Prestige. Uh, we're going to have to go on for a little bit before we discuss The Prestige. My number five 
is Dunkirk. Okay. I'm still shocked and in awe that it's your number 10. So I don't feel like I need to justify why it's my number five. You, sir, need to justify why it's your number 10. Okay, so... Um, I'm gonna. I, I've don't sp- don't you fucking give me the Saving Private Ryan argument. Don't you can nope, fucking put nope, that baby nope, to bed nope, right nope, now. No, nope, I'm not doing that. Um, so I've seen this movie twice now. Um, I saw it in theaters. Now the reason why that has any any bearing at all is because uh, uh, Melissa was like uber pregnant with Sophie. In fact, Sophie came a few days after her due date, and on the second day after her due date. We were genuinely fine trying to find things to do because Melissa was was getting really upset the fact that Sophie wasn't coming. And so um, I said, look, <laughs> this might sound weird, but do you want to go see Dunkirk? And like, do you want to go see a movie? Because it had just come out. And she said, sure. So we, we went and saw Dunkirk in theaters. And, and in the moment, I was I was blown away by the movie. And I'm and I'm an absolute Christopher Nolan fanboy. I, I will admit that to the day I die. Um pre-ranking this movie was number six. Um so we we watched it again. Oh that's funny. My it was it was number six on my pre-ranking as well. Um so we watched it again and I I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm bored. I I found this movie really boring. I I thought that the the shifts in the the one week, the one day, one hour, um, it almost felt like Nolan trying to go back to his playbook and and throw in shifting narratives, but we didn't need it. I thought it it it, it didn't make the story more interesting. Um, and 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 I'm I, I'm not going to ask you this because I feel like you've probably like looked at the IMDb and stuff now too. But besides, honestly, and I because I, I I chose not to look at this. Besides George, who who dies on the boat. And I know that because they say his name a lot in the movie. I could not tell you the single name of another character in the movie. Now that's not true. Now that I'm saying that, I think is is Tom Hardy's name like Farrier or something like that. Yeah, that's that's his name is Farrier. Yeah. But like I am I I am at such a disconnect with every single one of these people, and like the soldiers we choose to follow on the beach are like they, they seem scoundrelly. Like, and I get that they're just trying to survive, but like I don't like who I'm following. And I, I just, you know, and again, the, the way it's shot, like the opening is really great. It's intense. I mean, no one behind a camera. I mean, he knows how to do it. It's, it's great shit, but I, I, I don't, I, I, I found it, it was hard to keep my focus. And I just, and then I, I, I thought about, and I, 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 I thought about you and I thought about the fact that that you're you're British. You were born in England, and this probably has this probably resonates so much more with you than it ever will with me. This the, the filmmaking aside, the story of this is going to register with you more than me. I don't I don't want to get political, and I'm already saying incendiary things, but I'm going to say one more <laughs> incendiary thing that that's that's to do with you, you uh, Americans. That's to do with your lack of. Uh, your 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 lack of just history there's not a lot of american history as compared to the rest of the world but there's a certain uh and i'm i'm not putting this on you please don't take this as an insult there's a certain uh short-sightedness in a sentiment like that because i genuinely believe if dunkirk had failed there would be a much larger part of the world think 
the man in the high castle, there would be a much larger part of the world speaking German today. And, well, and I won't, I'm not going to disagree with you on that, but it doesn't, but it, yeah, I mean, maybe, I mean, it, sure, it doesn't feel like a, American history to me, but it, it, I mean, I can't say that I, I feel an influence that, that this, like, like my, I don't know, I don't know. I yes, just feel okay. like Amer- in, American in, forces were not involved. It was, well, yeah. it was English and French. I, I understand. But I, I do. But I, I also, understand that sentiment. But I also want to I want to make it clear that like just because America wasn't involved in the movie does that's not why it's number ten. I just and and the disconnect in the in the history is not why it's at number ten. I just found the actual the way in which this story was told. I didn't find it to be very interesting. I mean, every, I'm not gonna lie. Everything with Tom Hardy. That was that was so boring to me. I was so like, oh, okay, really? Because right. that for me that That's... that sets the bar. That that for me that sets the bar of what we can do with aerial photography. I feel like I'm up there. I no, feel no, no. like I'm in yeah. the cockpit in the same way that I felt the first time I saw Top Gun. Like I'm up there. I'm with them. Yes, but there's a difference between great filmmaking and the way things look and the storytelling and the, and what we're supposed to be getting from from what we're seeing. Like. Like, I, like honestly, I mean, maybe following aside, I think every single one of Christopher Nolan's movies besides following looks beautiful. And, and, and I mean, again, that's, that's Wally Pfister and Hoyt Van Hoytma, just like, and Christopher Nolan, like, just doing great work. Great work for what we see. And I, I cinematography across the board is fantastic. Um, and I think Dunkirk looks amazing. And the sound is great. Like the way the movie is put together is great. But like you asked me, you know, you said to look you in the eye and say, you think the dark Knight rises is a better movie. And personally, I, I guess my answer is yes, but ultimately like better. I don't know. Maybe I got Maybe I'll walk that back, but I would, I would turn on, turn on the dark Knight rises right now before I ever put on Dunkirk again. And this, this is where this, I feel like that I'm not, I'm not going to convince you and I'm not going to try to convince you, <laughs> but this is, this is where you and I, will always be opposed is that I would I would do the opposite I would put Dunkirk on right now because there's a there's there's something that runs through all of Nolan's films which we haven't talked about yet and it will become much more prevalent when we talk about Inception is the idea of a ticking clock and that time is always against you and yeah. I feel like that sort of theme that runs through his films sort of comes to a head in Dunkirk like there is a genuine clock ticking against you. We have a certain goal to accomplish. We have a finite amount of time to accomplish it. And if we don't, the fate of the world, unlike in Inception where it's just the fate of one man, in sure. this, the fate of the world will be different. And that's the thing that he really succeeds at getting across. Now, I agree with you. It's especially in the beach scenes. Yeah, because on the boats we have three characters. We have, I'm sorry, we have four characters. If you include Killian Murphy after they pick him up, we have four characters that we can resonate and identify with. When we're in the air, we have two. On the beach, it's a little more difficult because there were four hundred thousand men on the beach, and so how do you tell one unified story? I feel like this was, and this is why I I haven't made the comparison yet. I've been trying to avoid it. I mean, we did a little bit with Interstellar, but Kubrick, when he tried to make the film Perfume, he ended up giving up because how do you convey a sense of smell? That film is all about smell. How do you convey a sense of smell on film? 
and and Christopher Nolan has a similar dilemma here is how do you tell 400,000 stories you just you just can't and and I if if this film does have any one fault I would say it is in the beach sequences because there aren't really there's only a, there's a handful of guys that we're with but we don't in the same way and I'll I'll make the comparison seeing so you didn't it's not like saving private Ryan where we have a platoon we have a specific group of men that we can latch onto and follow I mean that that's true and I I don't think there's any direct comparison to make to to saving private Ryan and maybe and I guess maybe you know maybe my lizard brain is just not used to this kind of a of a quote unquote war movie where well, here, here's, here's a different one. What if we compare it to 1917, which is on a slightly smaller scale? But, but what's, what's the question? Well, I, the, the question what, is, what, is, what, it, is that a more apt comparison? Because it I, is a shorter I, length of time, there are less people involved in but I, that but sort I, of I, microcosm. I, I don't I, I don't know because we're still following core people. You grow to have a connection with our two guys in 1917, right? And I get that. Uh, clearly, we're with Farrier in the air, and we're with um, uh, Mark what, I guess I, and I, I guess what I mean is is a film that balances multiple stories while also maintaining the idea of a running clock. 1917 I, is probably a more apt comparison than Saving it, it, Private Ryan. I mean that, that that's yeah I could say that's true I mean but I but I then in, uh, no this isn't this is not what you're saying but like then <laughs> 1917 fucking blows Dunkirk out of the fucking water well and and it does 1917 is hands down I think I think it's the greatest war film of the century so far I I, I can't disagree but I also don't know all of the war films that came out this century <laughs> but yeah i i don't know man I, I i will say that of of all of the movies that i you know re-watching all of them this was a it was a huge letdown i i i just felt like i you know i, I, I have just a didn't... i have a question for you then yeah do you think about think about atonement is do you do you remember atonement enough yeah do you feel like that one beautiful tracking shot that one sustained long take in atonement of because that is dunkirk yes yeah do you feel like that tracking shot is better than the entirety of christopher nolan's film because <laughs> i because oh. i've seen that i've seen that said i i mean my gut response is yeah yeah I, I don't know what to say to that. I am at a loss for words. I'm, I'm so sorry. I love Dunkirk. Dunkirk really resonates with me. I, I For some reason, I'm able to look past the lack of personalization that we get with the men on the beaches, and I feel like we're supposed to be grounded by the Kenneth Branagh character, and then everybody else is kind of ancillary to him. Yeah, I yeah, I don't I don't get that. I, I I think he's he's too high ranking and we don't see him enough. I I just feel like it, yeah. I don't know. I just And and it's and it's the ticking clock aspect, the idea that the world will and of course we get to look at that in hindsight whereas the men on the beach maybe didn't feel that, but the the truth is is that I I feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of if this fails the entire the face of the world changes. 
I, I think that's something that he does really well to get across. And of course, like I said, he has the luxury of hindsight in which to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. I just kind of a letdown second on the second watch. Great performance by Killian Murphy though, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah, it's who, okay. Who's okay, so who's the best performance in this film then? Oh uh is there one? Uh, you, you have to you have to pick one. Is it it's probably Mark Rylance, right? I mean begrudgingly so I would probably give it to Mark Rylance. Yeah. And I and I know that it's it's not a popular subject in the time and place that we live in because obviously he was quite uh he could be a racist figure at times but he's also we have to we do have to acknowledge that he is a man that did change the face of the world. The fact that it ends with Churchill's never surrender speech. You're right. I'll just co- I'll be up front and and admit it because I am British that does hit me in all the right places. And so that does raise this film in my estimation, the hearing of the words. And I love the fact that it's not read by say somebody like Gary Oldman playing Churchill. It's read by one of the boys reading it out of the newspaper. We will never surrender. We will fight them on the beaches. It man, it fucking just gets me. Yeah. I don't know. I can't. I can't make a. I can't make a good argument based on the quality of the film. I'm making my argument based on the way it makes me feel. Well, and that's and that's that's the way. That's there's no other way to approach a list like this or any list. It's like it has to be your personal reaction to it. Yeah. Maybe if we were making maybe if we were making a a, a list based on quality, it might be lower for me. Yeah. I'm, if we were talking. Yeah. I mean, if we were talking to. When we talk about like cinematic quality, this probably would be higher. If I'm just judging the the elements of which a film is put together and everything that makes it, I mean, I can't say that Dunkirk is a better made movie than the than Following because it's not. But what movies I prefer to watch, that's that's just my cho- my choosing. I will say that I will I find it in myself to respect how low it is for you. I it it hurts me. It hurts me, but I I. I will be the bigger man and I will respect your decision to rank it at number 10. Even though I think we both know that the dark Knight rises is a piece of shit. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, man. I parts of it are definitely a flaming pile of shit. Yes. Um, okay. I'm going to go to my four. I'm going to go to my four, uh, which was your six. And that is insomnia. That you know what? Because of what's above it, that actually makes me really excited. But let's let's stop and talk about Insomnia. Great film. Yeah. I mean, you've you based on the original. I've never seen the original. Let let's start with comparison to the Norwegian film because yeah. you've seen it and I haven't. Yeah. Um. It's it's funny because uh, in the Norwegian version, it's so it's Stellan Star, uh, Skarsgård playing the Al Pacino role. Um. The first real thing is that you don't you don't ever empathize with Stellan Skarsgård character. He's he's more abrasive. He's more, uh, like flam not flamboyant isn't the right word, but very much like kind of kind of cocky, you know. Um, and without Pacino, you get like you get the age, you get the years of being a detective, and um, and so there's something about Pacino's performance that really really elevates it. The um. Uh, the, you know, and insomnia is it, it's uh, the the Swedish version is it's just darker in certain ways. Um, there's a scene in in insomnia in both versions where uh, Al Pacino has to shoot a dog 
because that's where he he gets the shell casing out of it um or the bullet and um in the swedish version the dog is alive in the christopher nolan version the dog is already dead um well that, which that, again, that makes sense based on audience sensibilities yeah um and then there's a scene which i don't understand why it was even in the so the the more tyranny character in the uh in in christopher nolan's version uh, in the Swedish version, he basically like tries to force himself on her, like in a back office, and it's very weird. It comes out of fucking nowhere. Um, there's no um, the connection with the 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 cop who dies in the Swedish version isn't as isn't as tight as what we get with um, Pacino and Martin Donovan. Like there's a history with Pacino and Martin Donovan that we, even though we don't see a lot of them together, you get it. You get that they know each other. Um, I mean, the Swedish version is fine, but they really they took that story and made it something much much bigger. And there's there's not really that Hillary Swank character in in the, the in the in the Swedish version so much. Well, I I understand the 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 need for having uh, a female pr- uh, protagonist, somebody that the, the you know you can you can latch onto in that way. And Hillary Swank at the time was probably the best choice for it. I mean, Boys Don't Cry had just come out recently. She had yet to make Million Dollar Baby. We're at the point where Hillary Swank is at her height, so I kind of understand the casting of her, and i th- I think she's I think she's pretty good in it. I do too. I think she. I, ho- I think she. I really think she holds her own against the 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 two leads. Now, I I just a quick personal story. I you know I've always been into movies, but I I never like. I never made my parents take me to movies. I never really was like the, Hey, you, you have to take me to this. Cause I, I just go by myself usually, but it was a weekend where I was with my dad and because of when we were able to see, um, uh, memento and, in, in, uh, insomnia was kind of coming on the heels of it pretty, pretty quickly. And I, and I, I remember I showed my dad like a, a trailer for it. And I was like, you know, and it was like, you know, how, I mean, the, the, the trailer was cool. You had all like, you know, Academy Award winner, Al Pacino and Robin Williams and Hillary Swank. I was like, oh shit, look at all these talented people in this movie. And I, I basically made my dad take me to go see this movie. And so, I, you know, it, it definitely has got a soft spot in terms of that. Because I, I didn't do that with my dad a whole lot. So I was like, cool, I get to go see this movie. And I picked it and we, and we certainly liked it coming out of it. And, and like. I think that was really the chance for us to see what Wally Fister could do. Cause when that plane is flying over, it's f- just gorgeous. All those glacial shots. It's just amazing. I mean, I know, I know it's Alaska and, and British Columbia, but did you get those Pacific Northwest feels? Oh, watching totally. that, especially like the fairy scenes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. It, it, it just, it kind of feels like home. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that honestly, best scene in the movie when they're on the ferry together and they confront each other and they're conspiring. I love how tight it is. It's shot in very tight close-up shots. You know, you feel like you're in it with them there. Pacino's leaning on that supporting bar and he's kind of doing a thing where he's moving around it. And Robin Williams is is very, very muted and understated. It's a very... Uh, the thing I appreciate so much is that it's such a controlled performance by both of them, especially by Robin Williams, who has the yeah. tendency to go... Actually, both of them, you could say, have the tendency to go much larger. I mean, just a few years previously, Al Pacino had done Any Given Sunday, yep. where, I mean, he, re- he fucking goes for it in that movie. Well, you we only get a... So you want to go Sorry. two years two years earlier than that? We get the Devil's Advocate. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he that is that is for me the birth of unrelenting shouty L. Yeah. And we we only get we only get shouty L a couple times in this movie, but when he does it, I feel like it is justified. That's that's what I was going to say. Very much so. Yeah. I love his uh I love his whole thing when they're in the cop shop before he kills his partner. His partner is is I don't remember what his partner is saying, but he turns to me and says, "The fuck you care." Yeah. Like, oh man, that, I feel that. That fucking goes through me. Well, and it does this thing too, and I, it, it is a thing that, that Nolan will, will, will do a lot in his movies is, is giving us an initial image that we don't quite know where it goes to and then revealing it later that it's not quite what we thought it was. And when we see the mysterious person rubbing the blood on the cuff of the shirt, we, we instinctively think that it's Robin Williams until we realize that it's, it's him reliving this, this daub case and that it was that that's it was him planting evidence and that he got blood on his shirt and and that that's that's that those flashes aren't that's not Christopher Nolan trying to make us remember oh yeah Robin Williams killed this girl it's like no 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 these are the flashes that that are keep waking Pacino up it's this one particular case that's driving him nuts in this endless daylight that he's having to deal with as well well, the way the way you word it flashes is great because the the first time we see that image of the blood seeping through, yeah, we think it's we think it's the blood seeping through on ice, at yeah. least in my mind, anyway. Yeah, no, no, and, I, yeah. and 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 you instantly associate that with with Alaska, the fact that there will be a murder here, there will be quote unquote blood on the ice. But the more the movie continues, the, the the further movie continues, and the more we see that image, we realize it's the blood soaking into the fibers of a white shirt, and Al Pacino uh, falsifying evidence, which I think it's, that's no, it's Nolan at one of his most playful instances visually. Yeah, well, and and just as in terms of history, this is the one movie. He did not have any hand in with the screenplay. This was written by Hillary Seitz. Uh, I, I, I get the feeling that this was the Warner Brothers being like, we're going to give you this script and we're going to see what you can do with it. Well, and he fucking well did not, e- not it. even that. It was This was a, a George Clooney, Steven Soderbergh project. Yes. And, and Soderbergh was such a huge fan of Memento that he lobbied for Nolan. That Warner Brothers wanted nothing to do with Nolan because they felt he was, he was untested. Well, Even though yeah, okay. I think Memento proves otherwise, Soderbergh lobbied hard for him to get this. But what I mean is, is like you know, Insomnia was a like here is a budget, here is here is, but but like, but but what, yes, exactly. What I mean is that he this wasn't a movie that he had any hand in writing, right? This was something that was given to him to like. Still, it's still a big budget though. I mean, oh yes, this was a this was a fi- almost fifty million dollar budget. That's that's pretty big for a third time director. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I. Yeah, man, I don't know what to say. I think as it's like I've heard I've heard this sort of compared to like kind of a Hitchcockian thriller and in it's sort of in its pace and it's sort of, you know, who did what and, and the double crossing. And I, I I do love when they get off the, the ferry and he holds up the tape recorder. Wild card. It's like, of course, of course, yeah, there's going to be something like that. Did you get a feeling of uh, a seven? There's a moment where uh, Al Pacino goes to Robin Williams apartment and just the way that it's shot reminds me of. Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt approaching Kevin Spacey's apartment. Yeah, I get I get that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was nice to see some of his influences played out in a more subtle way, unlike Interstellar, where it's clearly Kubrick everywhere. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, man. Well, what's what is your four? 
My four is Batman Begins. Okay, okay, so that was my six. Batman Begins is, for me, it's, it's the best of the trilogy because it actually feels like a Batman movie. And and it's this is this is a, an interesting thing to say in hindsight, because we have such a, a definitive performance from Heath Ledger as the Joker. But it's I I kind of thought about this, and I I was wondering if it's so high in my estimation because after Joel Schumacher's Robin Batman and Robin, there anybody could have done no wrong with this franchise, <laughs> right? It just happened to be Christopher Nolan, and he just had to. Ha- he just happened to have a darker vision. But honestly, he could do no wrong, right? I-, I think we can both admit that. Sure. But it is still. I mean, that's that's not to take away from just how. Uh, I so Liz and I have the big box set, the one that comes with all the little pieces of memorabilia and the and the model cars that are in it and things like that with the bat pod and the and the yeah. tumbler and things like that and there's a little letter from Christopher Nolan in it and he does talk about in this letter the intimidation as he says uh, walking out of Warner Brothers with the keys to one of the biggest franchises in history so I I, I do I do recognize a certain level of respect for just how big the project was that he was taking on but I feel like I feel like he set the bar for himself, not only with the trilogy, but with his entire filmography in general, so high with this film. He's got a great cast. Yeah. He's 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 got a great idea. I called it an experiment in the Dark Knight episode. He he had a he had an idea. He had a, a an experiment. He's like, look, I'm going to take one of these big over the top comic book franchises, and I'm going to inject something different into it. So I I my my. The reason why it's so high in my estimation is is there's a certain level of respect for having the balls to run with an idea like that. But I juxtapose that with the fact that it still has a flavor of the comic books. There's still an an idea of the supernatural. Like he addresses a supernatural character. He addresses an immortal character like Ra's al Ghul. And yeah. he tries to inject the realism into him. And he uses a lot of surreal imagery in it. Like whenever somebody's under the fear toxin. Yeah. There's still a flavor of surrealism and fantasy and comic book and still a sense of, this is why I wanted to bring this up in The Dark Knight Rises, there's a sense of fun in this film. Sure. Yeah, well, and I I also, so I, I, don't, know if I, I don't know if I mentioned this when we were talking about The Dark Knight Rises, but I feel like that's how bleak that movie is, is, is to make, I think, how dire the circumstances are, right? Batman is broken and bloodied and taken away and he has to see Gotham suffer. That, but I'm gonna put that aside now. You, yes, you're right. I do agree that there's a lot of comic book feely moments in it, and I, I think I think you're right. I'm glad you mentioned the the fear toxin and what people see when they're under it. It's it is creepy and surreal, and the way the camera is shaking. It's great. It 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 feels more like a comic book movie. And it's so funny. I, I feel like I'm gonna I'm contradicting myself when I say this, but I I both enjoy that a lot. I actually really do. But it's also the reason why it doesn't rank as high as The Dark Knight does for me, which there's there's less of that. But there's it just it it is the realism that draws me in more. And I I you know I I just tend to lean towards a more realistic story anyway. But that doesn't negate anything happening in Batman Begins. Um, I I I forgot when I rewatched it, that Tom Wilkinson was in this movie and it made me so happy. Uh, 
I'm so glad you brought him up. He's doing, you know what he's doing in this film? I don't know if you've ever seen it. I know I've brought it up on the show before because you, you and some of our listeners may know how much of a Bob Hoskins fan I am. He's doing a great Bob Hoskins in Long Good Friday impression. The way he holds his jaw, the way he sets his teeth. That's what he, that's what he's doing. He's doing Bob Hoskins. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I think, I think he's great. I, I really like seeing Gary Oldman kind of, you know, doing, I mean, it's, it's funny cause it's hard to not, it's hard to think of this movie as, as its own entity. It's hard to think of any of the Batman movies as their own separate entities, because I do think as a trilogy, this is one of the more successful ones. I know that the dark Knight rises is not, it's, it's rough. But I do as a whole story and all the arc. And if you're if you're following, you know, if you're following Bruce Wayne and you're following Alfred and you're following Gordon. Right. You can really see that arc, you know, and and I love seeing all the pieces start here. Um, I know people bitch about origin stories all the time and like we don't need another goddamn origin story. This is one that I like. I really love the idea of him putting himself in a prison to learn how to fight. I loved the training stuff. Liam Neeson is actually really good in this movie too. Like I, I was, I was going to ask you if you think this is Liam Neeson's best performance. Oh no, 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 no. Is it Rob Roy? No. It hit it's, me with it. It's Schindler's List. Okay. All right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> It sucks because he he ends, he's basically made a parody of himself. I love him in Taken actually, but like everything post Taken, it's like ah uh, okay. Well, now you're just doing a fucking gimmick. But well, and unfortunately, he's forced into the trope. The one thing I really hate in not just this movie, but a lot of movies of this type, is the the talking while you're fighting, <laughs> or in the gaps yeah. between fighting. Yeah. Well, uh, and that, it is- that that really rubs me the wrong way. It is. I, are you talking about when they're on the ice specifically? Well, it also happens later in the film while they're doing the final fight. The f- yeah, well, yeah. not only the fight on the train, but also the fight where he does that great thing where he does the he cut he his arm gets cut and then he cuts two other guys' arms in yeah. order to blend in. That's yeah. it, it happens there as well. I will say too, and maybe it's because you know Christopher Nolan is so much about doing things as real as possible without relying on CG. Everything happening kind of on the train towards the end. Like like Gotham and the Narrows and and the production design trying to blend in with the 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 computer graphics doesn't look good. That doesn't well, look before great. you before you talk shit. There's a lot more model work in there than than you. No no might. no no no. I know I know. I, I I've seen the behind the scenes stuff on that, but I, I I still it it some of it just it doesn't. I think I think the blending of all the pieces isn't as as great as it could have been. I, I get that. I I'm pretty forg- I'm pretty forgiving of that now. I put that down to being we're in the 15th anniversary of this film. I put it down to the same way that we used to talk about the Abyss or the or Terminator 2. You know, 10 years ago would be like, "Oh, it's it's 90s effects." I put it down to, "Oh, it's early 2000s effects." You know what I mean? It's just one yeah, of those but- things that's going to repeat itself as it gets better. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I I just, you know, I wanted to bring it up because it was but, a thought that I had. <laughs> but I get it. And then Killian Murphy in this movie. Killian Murphy is he's, amazing. Yeah, he's fun. I mean, he's. I think he's more... Again, yeah, kind of what you're saying. He's more of a... 
I don't want, I'm not insulting them. He's more of a comic book villain performance in it. Like that's yeah, no, he gets it. Like he knows what movie he's making. He's being very playful. And I love the dynamic of the three villains working together, even though not all of them know that they are working together. I, I love all of that. I love the kind of cheekiness I felt. You know what I felt this go around? I felt a little bit of Keaton in there. I felt a little bit of the cheekiness of Keaton, the sort of tongue in cheek, because Keaton knew that he was making a comic book movie, and that, in my mind, still makes him the best Batman. But he, I see some of that in Christian Bale, especially in his first real scene as Batman. Yeah, where he's taking the guys out in the shipyard. Yeah, and that I'm Batman. Yeah. Like I heard, I I swear to God, I heard Keaton in his voice. Well, there you go. There you go. Which is one of the, which honestly, I mean, I don't know if he would, but that is probably one of the biggest compliments that i could pay christian bale it's like saying it's like saying to daniel craig hey i can hear sean connery in your james bond i would if i was daniel craig i would take that as a compliment for sure yeah yeah, yeah. i get that any other and of course against the, oh. yeah there's there's a couple other i think it's i also think it's katie holmes best performance we talked about that a little bit in our, our dark knight episode i think she's really wonderful i fall head over heels in love with her and i understand uh, his infatuation with her. I still see a little bit of that Patrick Bateman, American Psycho, and his Bruce Wayne, which I, like Liz said, I think is necessary. Uh, also, yeah. shout out the Raid Serbegia cameo yeah. as the homeless man. We love Raid. I absolutely love him. I, there's no reason for him to be in it. Nope, not fuck at all. It. I, I love it. It makes me so happy every time I see him. Hey, that's a nice coat. There's a nice quote. Yeah. Oh, and okay. the henchmen. You know what? The henchmen actually sound like comic book henchmen while we're on the comic book tangent. I, I like that about this film. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. It's kind of cartoony, like the Batman animated series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Are we... Okay. Are we to my number three? We are top three, baby. Okay. My number three is Inception. My number three is Inception. Hey, you know what? On this go round of watching Inception, I figured out what it is that I hate about Christopher Nolan. <laughs> okay, and it's it's not it's a love hate thing. It's a jeal. You know what? It's not a hate thing. It's a jealousy thing. Okay, we've talked about how jealous we are of Brick. Like if you and I were to make a film together, Brick is the film that we would want to make. Yeah. And it's the same with this foreshadowing for me is such a cheap trick. And we'll talk about foreshadowing a little bit more when we get to the prestige. And I'm glad the prestige is so high in your esteem, by the way, because we're at number three. And we haven't talked about it yet. Well, I've, I've dropped it. Oh, you dropped it. Sorry. Yeah. Where did, where did you drop the prestige? Five. Prestige was five. Okay. I'm still glad it's in your top five. Yeah. Foreshadowing, I feel like is a cheap trick. It's, it's, uh, I'm not going to call it lazy writing because I know it takes effort to set something up and pay it off later, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, there's something about it that feels like you're, you're leaning on something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he is, he is the very, very best at foreshadowing. And it's something that I'm kind of jealous of. And I think it's no, it's the most prevalent in both Inception and Dark Knight. His use of foreshadowing in these films is perfect. Absolutely perfect. The way he sets up Mal in this film, yeah, is yeah. is is the main example of that, and and what a sort of a, a ruse she will be. 
I mean, I this movie, it's so funny. I was uh I was halfway through this theater intensive in, in, in somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania when this came out, and I uh at this point I'm I I'm already sold. I've bought plenty of Nolan stock and um it was the opening it was the weekend it came out and uh Monday through Friday we were we were in the space for like nine hours a day and then in the nights we were supposed to um uh, be, be working on our, on our, our scenes and stuff. But, uh, that weekend came and I, and I tried to convince like, Hey, I, I, as a collective, as like the 16 students, like, can we, can we all go see inceptions? Anybody against that? Nobody was. And like, so seeing, seeing inception in theaters with, with 15 other like highly like eager and loud theater people, which is such a great communal experience. And I will never forget when the end of the movie came, like there was a collective, like what at the end of it. And it was just such a, just a great moment. And it, I just, I fucking, I, I, I get that the movie can be like, if you really want to analyze whose dream it, is it a dream or is it real or what happened? Like if you want to get bogged down in it, sure. And if that ruins the movie for you, not you, but for people fine, I get it. Um, I, I choose not to see it that way and I choose to be awed by the effects and uh and by the performances and by the storytelling and it it's everything kind of working together. I uh I I agree. I'm curious to know because Melissa hates ambiguous endings. What is what is Melissa's take on Inception? I you know, it, it's not as as bad as you would think. Um Oh God, we just watched. Oh well, <laughs> this is not important to what we're talking about. But we just rewatched Donnie Darko a few nights ago, and we got to the end of that, and she was like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, it's kind of it's open. You know, you can feel feel like how you want to about that." But something like this, I think she she gets it. I think it's more like she's allowed to have her opinion of it. And we talked. We totally talked. Like she goes, "Okay, I know you read." all the, all the shit behind movies like this. So like, what are the theories out there? And so I, I told her some of the ones that I had heard, like, like that mall it's, this is all malls doing or that it's actually all a dream. Or if you, you know, how do you follow the logic who I, I, you know, you can read things that this is Joseph Gordon Levitt's dream or, it, or, or, I mean, it's, it just depends on how you see it, you know? And well, I, I, I think the, the big one is that we never see the top fall after Leo comes out of the dream when he is shown, the shared dream by the chemist. Yeah. Um, but that's that's very funny to me. I can I can almost hear Melissa saying at the end of Donnie Darko, what the fuck was that? Yeah, she... I, you know, it's funny because she, she actually enjoyed it up until like the, the last... Um, oh, what, what is the song at the end of it? Bad World or Mad World? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and like she... It was like... It kind of felt like so. What was everything I just watched? Like, what? <laughs> it, it was fine. <laughs> oh God! When when we get to sorry, as a side tangent, we need to have Melissa on when we get to Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko's not in the book. It used to be. It used to be. Oh, sons of bitches! Maybe we'll have to do a special. <laughs> um, but what really struck me about this film this time is I started to peel back in my mind because I, I've seen it numerous times but I started to really try and think about well what is this film trying to say and I think this film really deals a lot with not only grief and denial those are those are those are the easy ones right yeah. but I think this film also says something about addiction and dependency oh for the sure de- 
the idea of waking to dream and dreaming to wake was the sort of phrase that came to me. I don't, I'm sure somebody else has said it. I'm not trying to claim credit for it. but And also, in a sort of darker way, and again, trigger warning, this film actually kind of deals a lot with suicide. Oh, and the idea yeah. of like what lies beyond. And is, is suicide a, a, a quick and easy route to get there? Yeah. I mean, I, there's there's that moment where... Um, what's, oh God, it's, it's, um, Ellen Page's character's name. I don't, I can't believe I'm not blanking on that right now. Um, anyways, she, she leaves and, um, and, uh, Leo says to George, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like when she comes back, have her making mazes. And he's like, how do you know she's going to come back? And he's like, well, she's, she's been in there now. She's not going to be able to, the real world isn't going to be enough for her. And yeah. yeah, this idea of addiction, like once you get the taste of something more interesting and more unique or whatever, like that's going to, what what kind of draw that that has on you? What kind of an effect that has on you? For sure. Yeah. I mean, Leo, you know, it's the only way he can dream is to go in there. Well, and if I can go, if you'll excuse the pun, if I can go one layer down, if I'm Christopher Nolan and if I make this film, I can understand an addiction to the idea of wanting to top it because you have made the biggest budget and the most original screenplay and it's been signed off by a major studio because because think about this for me this is Christian Nolan coming into his own really stretching his muscles and being like I know you guys enjoyed everything I've done up to this point but now I have a budget to play and watch me play look at all the colors in my paint box look at all the tools in my toolbox because if you think about it he wrote Memento with his brother uh, Dark Knight and Batman Begins they're based on a comic book uh, Prestige is based on a novel yeah. and Insomnia is a remake Yep. So this is him going, okay, now you guys have seen what I can do. Let me show you what happens when I'm off the fucking tether. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, very true. Very true. And I, I'm even now as we're talking about it, I'm struggling for the reason why it shouldn't be my number two. I, I, I For me, and it's, I, you know, my, my number th- my, one through three were really in flux, kind of through... Um, Ultimately, they all stayed the same pre-ranking and post-ranking, but um, what I'll say about my top three is that I think, this might be a stretch, but like they all might make my top 100 films. They all have had a huge, profound effect. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's really, I think, even though I said Dunkirk, I feel like was him, the, the idea of a running clock, a ticking clock coming to a head, this is the best example of him using that running clock in any yeah. of his films. Like the second they go down into that first dream and everything goes wrong and they say, oh no, we fucked up. Saito has been shot. We have to get it. You feel that clock. You feel it like a physical presence come down on you. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you and know- I'll, I'll go back to my foreshadowing argument. The thing that, that I didn't realize in other viewings everybody has a totem which tells them whether they're in the real world or not because only they know the exact weight and balance of their totem. Ariadne's totem is a pawn and she is used as a pawn during during this entire movie. Yeah, that's I'm true. Like, fuck God. That's true. Fuck you, Nolan, and your understanding of foreshadowing and doing it better than anybody else in the history of filmmaking, you son of a bitch, you. There's, it's a jealousy thing. It's a I'm fucking s- jealousy thing. I'm, I'm really, it. I don't care. I'm really glad that Inception is in the book and that we'll be able at some point to devote an entire episode to it because 
I'm I'm really trying to withhold a lot of my thoughts and feelings because I could just I could go off on a huge tangent. Um, oh, he out he outdid himself. He 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 challenged Kubrick for the title of the most innovative, beautiful, creative filmmaker ever, especially in the centrifuge sequence in the hallway. Oh my God, it's so fucking good. I top that. You can't. It's incredible. No one else before or since has done something that impressive. That hallway fight sequence is it's. I just play that on a loop. I love it. It's yeah. fucking perfect. Yeah, I agree. Gordon Levitt sells it so fucking hard. Oh, and I don't. I I wish I'd gotten the name of that actor, or the stuntman that also fight, because he deserves just as much credit. Well, again, that's why that's why we'll have an episode on it at some point, so we can do we can give all those people credit that they they deserve. Absolutely. All right, man. Let's top two. Here we go. Top two. About to this, throw down, son. This was tough. This was really tough. Um, and I think ultimately it's, it's an enjoyment thing, I guess, but my number two is Memento. My number two is Memento. Well, if, uh, we'll give a shout out here because we should, uh, anybody who's a fan of Cinemusts, you can go back and you can take a look at Adam's episode. He joined, uh, Mike, who does our brother podcast. They also take a look at the thousand and one movies you must see before you die. You guys did Memento and Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun that was a fun it's, combo of movies to talk about. I, it's a great episode, man. Um, man, I I gotta say, and I I Memento, you know, I I I I think I had it was one of those times where the you know the even at that point in high school I was into the into the Oscars and and like I've already mentioned this before, but a best original screenplay is always in my favorite category, and I was like, what's this movie about? And I, they happened to have it at, at Hollywood Video. And I had the strangest double feature over the weekend. It wasn't in the same night, but I, in the same weekend, I watched Mulholland Drive and Memento. And like my 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 14-year-old brain couldn't quite handle it. But um, Memento... Yeah, I don't know how you didn't cur- curl up into a ball and just stay there for a week. But, but Memento, like, it blew my fucking mind. It... Not and I honestly not since when I first seen Pulp Fiction had a movie ch- like changed the way that I was like wow that's not not filmmaking storytelling it's like that is a fucking way to tell a story and I was I was just hook line and sinker from the moment I realized like whatever that that first moment that first sequence everything's going backwards and it ends with him of course saying no backwards so he says it says on and like that's a that's a great little detail and then we get the the black and white segment okay okay all right all right and then when that next color segment ends and you realized your your scene that scene before and then like you realize how how the storytelling is being done i i was i was i even right now i get goosebumps thinking about cuz i'm like that was just so mesmerizing and I was like, and I hadn't seen following at this point, but I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Who is Christopher Nolan? And you know, you we, had that you had that gut reaction. I have to see everything this guy does. Yeah, right? and and you know, I do think that that I know I know they finally gave him uh, uh, an Academy Award nomination for Dunkirk, but I do think the Academy has some silent grudge against him because he earned DGA nominations for Memento and Dark Knight and Inception. And never got that best director not nominee oh. until. Well, let's Dunkirk. let's talk about it then. Losing original screenplay to Gosford Park. I I still think 
to this day, and I my appreci- my appreciation for Gosford Park has gone up over the years. I still think that's only the fourth best film nominated for best original screenplay that year. Personally, it it's it's a fucking travesty. And I how think, do you feel about it losing editing to Black Hawk Down? Because that one I struggle with a little more. Um. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, this film has to do a fucking lot, and it has to be innovative in the way that it's editing. So maybe, maybe I'm talking myself out of my own okay. argument, but no, I- because of the because of the innovation, obviously, it deserves the Oscar. But it was up; it lost editing to Black Hawk Down, which has. 40 different narratives it has to balance yeah i think i think um and you'll you'll see sometimes movies that have a tricky timeline get nominated for editing because it's it's trying to balance that um i think it was the right call with black hawk down um but but i'm but really really glad i mean you know memento wasn't was an independent film in every like new market films is, is who produced that movie there's that you know that's not a big label and the fact that it was even up against Black Hawk Down is kind of fucking amazing. Um, oh, that's kind of a win in itself. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's, you could have easily, you know, like, in a way, this could have been like, you know, when they gave In Bruges a nomination. Like, of course, we wanted it to win, but, you know, they're going to give it to the movie up for Best Picture. It's very rare that uh, a movie nominated for Best Original Screenplay, not nominated for Best Picture, will beat a nominee that is up for best picture. That doesn't happen very often. Um, so it wasn't surprising, but again, I, I, I would have rather Memento or Royal Tenenbaums or Amelie getting best original screenplay over Gosford Park. Oh man. Royal Tenenbaums not winning is still such a kick in the balls. Yeah, that was a good year. It was a good year. It was a fucking great year. Um, let's talk about performances then. Joey Pants. Fuck, let's man. Talk dude, about Joey Pants. Here's the thing about Joey Pants. He he never gets a moment. Like like, I mean, you. I mean, it's so hard to list all of the fucking movies that he's been in. But he's always he's always a side character. He's always a villain, and he's always very sarcastic, right? Like whether it's like a cartoonish villain in The Goonies. Or something like The Matrix, where he's like, we're kind of like, really kind of a dick, or like, not really but a think, villain, but just think about ahead. this run: Bound, Matrix, and this. What a run of fucking characters to be on! And obviously, I know he made movies in between. Obviously, he did uh, another uh, fugitive movie that did U.S. Marshals in between, yeah. and a couple others. But when you think about those three performances in the space of less than five years, what a gift! I just think I think this is the Besides, I mean, the Sopranos aside, which it's it. He, oh he's, God, fuck me! I forgot. Yeah, he was in the Sopranos in the middle of all of this. Yeah, um, and he does do really good work in that. But in terms of if a film work, this is such a different character. I mean, I know we're meant to believe that he's a villain early as we go through because we're we're trusting the photograph of "Don't Believe His Lies," um, but like that last real sequence that he's in, it's some of the best, most earnest acting I've ever seen him do. And it's, well, he's he's think, he's pleading for his life. Well, no, no, no. I'm not talking about no, no. I mean, the it's like that where we go from the the where we kind of. Well, yes, where, but um, that 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 scene they will revisit that, and and he will he is he is in a way sorry pleading for yeah. the wrong. He's pleading he's pleading for not only his own life but for Leonard's life. He's pleading for his life to change. 
like, hey, man, you did it. And I watched you do it. And I thought I took a photo of you and he shows him the photo. I thought when I took this, you would change, but you didn't. And there is such a deep, deep melancholy there. Yeah, it's man. I Joey Pants is great. Carrie Ann Moss giving it to Guy Paris when he when she's talking about what how his how his wife could have gotten. Or, uh, or how, what, what a cause of, of short-term memory loss is, is venereal disease is just like, like just so harsh, just so fucking vicious. And again, playing against what we know, like I only know Carrie Ann Moss as uh, Trinity. Like there's no other, what, what, so to see her do this, I was like, whoa, this is a whole nother level for you. Um, and again, and I, I think Guy Pierce is, is fucking incredible in this too. I loved, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I love David Julian's score. I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, I know this is an indie film, but like this, this makes most indie films look like dog shit. <laughs> well, there's also, uh, there's also a sense of humor in it, which is missing from some of Nolan's later films which I, I really appreciate. There's a sense of, of uh, he, he knows when to inject the film with levity, which doesn't happen in films like Dark Knight Rises or Interstellar, when yeah, I, films that films that actually need it more than some of the others, which I don't love have when, it. I love when he's holding the, uh, the bottle of scotch and we finally realize, like, huh, I, don't, I don't feel drunk. And when that, when that finally comes to fruition... Oh, he's, and he thinks he's chasing a guy? Okay, I'm chasing... Oh, no, 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 he's chasing me. <laughs> yeah. That's fucking great. And then the spitting in the beer, that, I, I fucking love that so much. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, and I mean, again, I'm just, I'm happy that this movie's in the book for us to do a bigger deep dive on at some point, but I, this movie was very influential on me when I first saw it. Um, it it's just, it, it's just an, an incredible movie, and... It it changed the way I I, I appreciate film. I... So I'm 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 not tipping my hand because we are so close to our number ones. But there are three films, and only three, that I have ever watched immediately after I finished my initial watch, like same day. Usual Suspects, The Prestige, and this. You notice how two of those are Nolans, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that just speaks volumes to his understanding of narrative and craft and just there's and and a playfulness. There's a playfulness in the prestige and memento, like I said, that's missing from some of the other ones, which are why they're my number one and number two, respectively. And before we move on completely from memento, Sammy Jenkins and Leonard, same person. You know, I it's tough because. That, that that that's that's a part of the screenplay it's a bit hard to follow sometimes where is Sammy Jenkins was was that ever a real person or was it just something that that Leonard created or was like you know it is yeah that's tough I, I don't know that I have an, a, a solid opinion on that because I think sometimes I I'll end the movie and I'll go that that was just like Sammy Jenkins wasn't didn't exist and it was always just Leonard's story and this is just where he is in his life now. And sometimes I go, wait, Sammy Jenkins was a person, or but but was he just a was he faking it? And and he's just sort of and Leonard's just sort of blended his story into his like you know merged the two. Um, that edit though, there's a fucking great quick edit where it goes from oh, Sammy yeah. to him. That's fucking fantastic. See, I I have no answer for that, and that like Blade Runner is Deckard a replicant or not? That is the reason we talk about this film. 20 years later it is the 20th anniversary of that film and here we are 
<sighs> okay, man. And here well, we are. So, so I feel like I will let you I will let you choose which one we talk about first. There's only two left. Your number one is the Dark Knight. Yes. My number one is the Prestige. I feel like this episode was not as contentious as I thought it would be. It was a little disheartening in places. Your opinions of Dunkirk notwithstanding. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's let's. So just I will the... let I will let you decide. Do you want to talk about Dark Knight or the Prestige first? Well, I, let's just say Dark Knight because go back and listen to our episode on Dark Knight. That I mean, that's mostly what I'll say. I I just I everything that you said about this being the 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 most beautiful looking or what i don't want to misquote you about comic book movie like the what did you say what's your what did you say i i i think it's it's probably the best looking comic book movie ever made yeah it the way that it's shot the performances i mean i mean you know again putting maggie gyllenhaal aside uh in terms of of what she's doing in the movie i i think the ensemble is great i think the visuals are great i think the realism and and the cinematography and the score and you know as much as memento is really important to me. I just can't, the way that I feel watching the dark Knight, I can't, I can't subdue. I, I, I can't, my, my more analytical side of my brain wants to make memento my number one, but I just can't do it. It's, it's the and dark that's, Knight. That's great that you use the words analytical brain because the reptilian brain in me loves this film. And I remember, and I, I want so desperately, and I mentioned it on the dark Knight episode. I want so desperately that first screening. I want yeah. that back so badly. I yeah. want to experience this film for the first time in a completely full theater, standing room only where everybody was gelling and jiving and the same experience. And the, all we were hitting all the highs, we were hitting all the lows. It was just a, a, a spiritual visceral experience seeing this film for the first and I'll never have it again and that yeah. uh, it's 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 really sad I, I, there's there's so much that I, I I can't take away and I I understand your position I mean you you think about the 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 limb that Nolan went out on to make this there's, there were so many risks involved in making a film like this in the ways that he wanted to make it my respect for this film outweighs my love of it sure sure but i don't and i, I mean, mean we I, we talked about heath ledger he won he won 32 he won 32 out of 34 awards that he was nominated i don't know that we can name a better record than that yeah yeah that's pretty that's that's staggering um but i, I and i don't mean to cut it short but i mean we we have like an hour and a half episode on the dark night so i would just tell our listeners to go back and listen to that <laughs> I know it's just it's for me it's not a very good Batman movie I feel like Batman's on the back foot for most of the film it's a great score great cinematography but ultimately I'm not saying Dark Knight is a bad movie my issues with the third act aside which I bring up in the episode I just like all the other ones six through one better sure yeah so let's talk about Prestige Prestige is a perfect film <laughs> it's perfect it's flawless it's it is the greatest use of foreshadowing in any film i've ever seen there's a well, scene right at the beginning or not right at the beginning it's a scene where uh the alfred the arthur borden character played by christian bale meets rebecca hall's character sarah for the first time she's got a young boy 
with her. We assume that she's a babysitter, a nanny of some sorts. This isn't her kid, but she's brought a kid along to this magic show, and he's doing the bird trick, where, unfortunately, back in the day, in order to do that disappearing bird in the cage trick, you had to kill the bird. You flatten the cage, kill the bird, and then you'd bring back another bird. Yeah. And the kid says, where's his brother? If you haven't seen the procedure and you don't know what I'm talking about, I, I feel very sorry for you. We'll get into it in just a minute. But that line, fuck me running. That is the best use of foreshadowing ever. I mean, it's it, it's all great. I mean, we get it in, in, a little bit later, but when when um, Angiers goes to see the... the um, the transported man, the way that the way that Borden's doing it originally, and uh, and he's talking to Michael Caine about it. Michael Caine is so matter of fact. He's like, "Look, I don't know how you think he would do it, but I know how I would do it, and it has to be a bloody double." And I, in a way, I love. I kind of love when a movie has the balls to just to actually tell you what the twist is, but 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 because you're following Hugh Jackman's character, you're following Angiers, you don't want to believe it, right? Because you see how he would go about doing it, and of course we don't know. We don't know until the end. Of course, I mean, well, of course, viewing, on but... on your first on your first yeah. viewing, you don't. I I love that you bring that up. The movie at the beginning tells you tells you how the movie is in. There's a great line. I'm I'm going to use the one that Michael Caine says at the end of the film. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't want to work it out. You want to be fooled. And I thought I just that to me the ballsiness of that the sheer fuck offery of it is like quentin tarantino at the end of inglorious bastards saying yeah. <laughs> i think i've made my masterpiece <laughs> and how are you not supposed to sit there and go yes sir yes you fucking have yeah yeah i think this is i think this is if Again, I've talked about Michael Caine's performance as Alfred being, over the course of the trilogy, being his greatest movie. We talk about in the 20th century, I think this is Michael Caine's best performance. I think this is Christian Bale's best performance. If Prisoners hadn't have come out, this would be Hugh Jackman's best performance for me. All three of these guys are at the very, very top of their game, working with a script that both challenges them and I'm sure excited them. The fact that they got to be in on the secret and there's a there's a, a playfulness that runs through the entire film that just isn't there in in I would say any other Christopher Nolan film. But within the within the play, and this is something that I feel like we start to lose, uh, that we that Christopher Nolan kind of kind of gets away from in his later films. But there is a sense of, there is a sense of playfulness, and because this is about magicians, there's a sense of wonder. But really, this is a this is a gritty movie about these two guys who want to be better than the other one, and will it's, stop. It's about at, obsession. Yeah, and and nothing will stop them. And the the level in which they are able to, you know, I, you know, I, I don't I don't want to just bare bones the script, but you know, Bale basically is the reason why uh, Hugh Jackman's wife dies, and then Hugh Jackman goes in and puts the bullet in for the bullet trick and so he loses his fingers. Oh, those and, those are my two two of my favorites. I've got three scenes that I just cannot choose between which one is my favorite. The first one is Jackman shooting off his fingers. And then the flip side of that where at the end we see the twist where he has to cut the fingers off of his twin's hand yeah. in order to match. And his wife said, I don't understand why they're bleeding again. 
Another one is where we see uh, that that there's a beautiful one of the best pans in any film I've ever seen. The pan up when Jackman, his character, or Angier is doing the bird trick, and they found a different way to do it so they don't have to kill the bird. And he realizes the volunteer he's called up on stage is Christian Bale's character, and he forces the cage close and kills the bird. Great shot. And then the other one is the realization, the look on, on Michael Caine's face, which is why I call this one of his best performances, when he realizes that Lord Cordwell and Angier are the same person, and he yeah. sees that Cordwell has taken uh, Borden's daughter, yeah. the Christian Bale's character's daughter, and says, what have you done? All three of those scenes just fucking just bowl me over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's and it's one of those things too where you're right that we don't want to see we don't want to see the trick. And so when when one of the Bordens is being hanged, and we feel like we feel like Hugh Jackman has won, and you know we feel like Angiers has, has essentially been like the better man. Uh. It's so when 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 the other Borden comes out, we and we see what's been going on. It's 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 such a great moment, and I do, I and I love the way that they we like I love opening up on all the hats, you know. I think that's great. Um, Again, then, a great use of foreshadowing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I it I you know I'm looking at my list, and it's like I don't. Again, that's why I said like like I I like Batman Begins. I don't love it. But like my five through one, I love these movies. They're all very, very good movies, and I could put them on right now, and I'd be thrilled to watch them. Um, I I really want to watch the Prestige with you. I want to have that experience. You and I to sit down and have that experience, even though we know the movie. But my yeah. my dream is for you and I to see that movie together for the first time. And I don't know. We were still hanging out in two thousand six. I have no idea why we didn't watch that movie together. Honestly, I probably was just, I was like one of my first years of college. Like I probably, yeah, was you just... were, you were in college and I was working. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a shame if I could go back in time and alter, there's a lot, <laughs> obviously there's many things that I would alter. One of them, <laughs> one of the, is seeing this movie together. I want to have that, that conversation with you. I want to have that first time, like what the fuck happened to us? in yeah. the course of this film and discover it together. Again, another great use of foreshadowing. Talking about fixing the, the bird trick so that they don't have to kill the bird. And Hugh Jackman goes, I thought he shows him how to do it without killing it. And he goes, well, I thought you said I had to get my hands dirty. And he says, maybe one day you will. That fucking line. That, that's one of those lines, again, that reinforces my jealousy of Christopher Nolan going, you fucking you magnificent bastard. <laughs> I, and I, again, I don't know if it was in the novel. I read a brief sort of synopsis of the novel and it seems like, it seems like a really interesting read, but they definitely dealt with a lot of things at the end. They, it seems like they really improved on the end and dealt with a lot of things that would have complicated them. Yeah. Uh, the end of the film, a whole nother subplot involving the uh, Angiers that survived. They did the right thing by just killing them off. Yeah. Yeah. And David Bowie. We haven't even yeah. talked about David Bowie yeah. as fucking Nikola Tesla. Now, the first time his entrance, his entrance is magnificent, by the way, when he walks through the lightning field. Yeah. I thought that was Pierce Brosnan. Oh, I could, he, I could maybe see that. 
he definitely has an air of Pierce Brosnan in the way that he acts. I think this is, I mean, I've seen The Man Who Fell to Earth, and it's okay. I, I definitely don't think that it deserves all the praise that it gets. I think this is David Bowie's best performance. It's very understated, and I would. I, it's a shame that he's still not with us, because I would have loved to have seen a Tesla biopic just focused on him sure. as as Tesla. Yeah, yeah, that would have been interesting. Oh, man, I just, I could... I could have done honestly. I could have done a whole two-hour episode on this film. Oh, I yeah. feel like it's. I I said that I think it was Jackman's best performance before Prisoners came out. This is. I feel like Jackman is just on the ragged edge. This entire film, in the same way that Heath Ledger is on the. This is a performance that is on the edge of going overboard. There's that moment where Christian Bale comes to the funeral of his wife, where they've changed up the the whole reason his wife dies on stage is they changed up the knot. They use yeah. the Langford double, and she can't get out of it, and therefore drowns. And Christian Bale says, "I can't, I can't remember which knot I used." And and Hugh Jackman's reaction of, "What do you mean you don't know? You don't know the way that he shouts it. You don't know, like that. That has the potential to be over the top, but he fucking he sells it. I feel his grief and I feel his pain in the same way that I say I think this is Michael Caine's performance because of the A and B side of one line." where he tells, he, he gives the eulogy at his wife's funeral and says, I knew a sailor once, and it took him X number of minutes to, to come around. He, he drowned, and he said, you know, drowning was peaceful. It was like going home. And then when he, at the end of the film, but when he finds out that Jackman drowned 100 of his own, of his doubles in the, in the cloning machine, in the, tran- in the real transported man. Yeah. He says, I lied. He said it was like agony. Yeah. Oh man, the hairs on my arm are standing. That line just that pierces straight through me. And the way, and it's not just because the line is so great. Michael Caine, he doesn't break eye contact. I almost wish it was like a Jonathan Demi shot where he was looking into camera and saying it, just so we really fucking know just how much he means that he lied. So. I'm sorry. I, I could I could go on. I no, could no, no. go on and on and on about so, how so, much I love the Prestige. So, I think it is a damn near perfect film. The way it looks, the sound. So, it's just talking Rebecca about this Hall. movie. Talking about this movie with you right now. Uh, it was my five. I'm switching it with Insomnia. Insomnia is now five. Prestige is now four. Oh, just, I had I the little victories. The little victories. That's what it's all about. Oh. <laughs> This is why we do this together. And the fact that it ends with a Radiohead song. The, the Tom York song. I fucking... Oh, man. This, I, I'm going to watch this movie again right now after we're done recording. <laughs> I don't give a shit. I love this movie. Well, I, I'm not. I, I take that back. I'll probably watch it again this weekend. But tonight, I mean, we're, uh, we'll confess that we're a few weeks ahead. Uh, we're we're yes. recording this on the day that Ian Holm died, which is... We- Ian Holm was my, my birthday twin. We were both born on September twelfth. I love this man very, very much. It was a he lived a good long life. He lived to eighty eight. Yeah, I would say that's a good long life. But I I'm gonna, too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick on Time Bandits, even though I know he's only in it for a few minutes. But his Napoleon just makes me so happy. Anyway, sorry, side tangent there. I just no, no, it's to, all good. I, just, so, I, I, I couldn't help myself. I had to. Yeah, no, no, I, yeah, I, I, he, I, I, he's in, he's in a bunch of great movies. Gotta, gotta give him. Got to give him some some do. Um, okay, so do we want to read through? I I've I've done. I have the I have the cumulative. So do we want to go through our tens? 
Well, just, you you had hinted at the fact that we were going to talk briefly about the IMDb rankings, and we haven't done that. So I don't know if you want to do that before we get to the definitive ranking, or do that after. I'll leave that up to you. So um, yeah, we can. I mean, we'll, we can quickly just just fly through it, just so people people know. Um, so of the of the ten finished films that Christopher Nolan has made, seven of them are on the IMDb 250. I'm not going to have these in, in a like a sequential or in any so Memento is ranked I, I will I will say just to give it some perspective. He has 7 in the IMDb top 250. That ties him with Kubrick and Scorsese. But yeah. Miyazaki, Billy Wilder, Kurosawa, Spielberg and Hitchcock are below him with only 6 each. <laughs> I you know that's what it is. So, so Memento was in there at number fifty-five. Batman Begins at one twenty-nine. The Prestige at forty-six. The Dark Knight at four. Inception at thirteen. The Dark Knight Rises at seventy. And Interstellar at thirty. Those second, those, those, those are that, those are wrong. <laughs> well, here's to put it in perspective, and I think we did this on the Dark Knight Rises episode. The Dark Knight Rises being at number four means that on either side of it are Godfather number two and Twelve Angry Men. I know it's your number one. I'm going to get one last shot in there. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> um, another another thing I did really quickly. Um, so I, I took all of the Rotten Tomato scores, both uh, critical and audience, and I averaged them out. His average critical Rotten Tomato score is 85.8. His average audience score is 88.3. So he That's... makes movies that people like. I mean, it's uh, not just not just critics, but audiences, man. I mean, that's you can't deny that this man has found a way to to strike a chord in the hearts and minds of the the cinema going public. And it's again, I mean, it's I'll fully accept it. It's a jealousy thing. I wish I was making films, and I wish I was making films this good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, so here we go. Uh, just to recap, my top ten in order: uh, number ten, Dunkirk; number nine, Interstellar. Eight is The Dark Knight Rises. Seven, Following. Six, Batman Begins. Five now is Insomnia. Four, The Prestige. Three, Inception. Two, Memento. And one, The Dark Knight. And my number 10, beginning with number 10, Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Following, The Dark Knight, Insomnia, Dunkirk, Batman Begins, Inception, Memento, and at number one, a perfect movie, in my opinion, The Prestige. So, averaging these out, what I did, and I, I think it'll be, I think one of the uh, two of ours had the same, um, the same average. So, or a few, a few of them did. I gave uh, the movie that had the higher ranking between the two of us the higher slot. So, here's my ten, uh, the cumulative, and see if see if you like it. Number this 10. is the official. The, this, this is, is the official one thousand and one by one, Christopher Nolan. Yes, yes. Number 10, The Dark Knight Rises. Number 9, Interstellar. Number 8, Dunkirk. I'm very sorry, Ian. Number 7, Following. Number 6, Insomnia. In the top 5, we get Batman Begins. Number 4, The Dark Knight. 3, Inception. 2, the Prestige, and we believe cumulatively that the best Christopher Nolan film is Memento, which makes sense. We both had it at number two. We both think very highly of that movie. I'm, I, you know, I can live, 
other than Dunkirk, I can live with that list. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day, maybe one day, you and I will sit down and do Gun- Dunkirk together, and perhaps I will be able to to crack that hard shell of hatred surrounding that <laughs> film for you. I actually think it'll change over time. I really do. Um, I, I, I think it will. I've, I've seen it three times, and I will say, I didn't bring this up when we were talking about it, I was very cold to it the first time I saw it. I walked out of that film going, I wish this was less Christopher Nolan-y. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I think over time it'll change. So, But, wow. So this is... Thank you for sticking with us. Um, this is our epic episode. I almost don't want to split it in half. I almost just kind of want to release it as a whole. I'm fine with that. See what people think about it. See if they can. They yeah. just just take time. They take breaks. Yeah, um, no, that's fine. I don't. I don't care if people break it up, but I want this to go like the Irishman. Let it go out <laughs> as a whole. That's great. Uh, so, so those are our thoughts on all of Christopher Nolan's movies. But as always, of course, we want to know what you think of his movies. So please hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what your favorite Christopher Nolan movie is. If I'm crazy putting Dunkirk at 10, um, I would love to hear people get mad at me. That'd be great. Um, you can support the show at patreon.com slash 1001 by one. You can find us on Stitcher and Google Play and Spotify and Apple Podcasts, all those great places. Um, please stick around next week as we, uh, we, we believe, I believe it's the, is it the 60th anniversary or 70th. That is correct. 60th um of uh we're going back to a michael powell film uh the only one of his movies in the book that is a uh not associated with Pressburger. uh we'll have a guest I'm really excited for all of those things i've never seen this movie so it'll be interesting for me well you I mean, said you and uh, sorry to to get back to nolan here you said that people might be mad at you for dunkirk i think people are going to be slightly more mad at me for having dark knight at number seven that is a <laughs> I'm not trying to take the credit or anything, but I feel like my opinion is the more incendiary. So uh, we'll just, to that we'll, I say, to that I say, come at me, little Nolan fanboys and girls. <laughs> we are eagerly anticipating your hatred, but until then, I am Adam, and I am Ian, and we will see you next week.